Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris, and uh, I am working with some very spotty internet right now, so uh, I'm kind of uh, kind of clenched. I'm hoping that my notes stay open and uh, that I'll be able to upload this when I'm done with it, but uh, we will keep our fingers crossed. Uh, this is X-Lapsed episode 15, and we are going to be discussing Excalibur number one. Now, this was the last of the Dawn of X books that I actually read in real time. Um, and maybe as we work our way through, uh, it might be, be a little bit clearer as to why. Um, now let's get right into it. Excalibur number one, December, 2019. Verse one, the accolade of Betsy Braddock is the name of our tale. It was written by Teeny Howard with art by Marcus Toe or two colors by Eric Arseniga. Letters by VCs Corey Petit, design Tom Muller, head of X, Jonathan Hickman, edits Biso White Sobolski. $4.99 United States currency. Uh, release date, October 30th, 2019, and uh, I apologize for all of those names I just ruined and spoiled and destroyed. Uh, yeah, you know, when you see names, and I mean this goes for real names and comic names, when you see them in, in print, you don't always sound them out. And, uh, or maybe you do in your head, but when you, when it actually comes to, like, make the words come out of your mouth, it's another story altogether. So, uh, all of our, all of our folks in the credits, I apologize if I totally, totally messed up your name. Now, for this issue, I got stuck with the design variant cover. That's what they call it, the design variant. It looks, eh, it's a little uninspired when compared to covers with actual characters on them. Um, and I'm not sure what it says about my local shops, but, uh... Maybe they under-order the real covers? Because, uh, I mean, the fact that out of the first three releases, I had to settle twice for lousy variants. Um, maybe that says something that there's an actual appetite out there for, like, the real covers, right? Uh, yeah, it was X-Men number one, I got that stupid cake cover. Marauders, I got the real one. And then this one, I get this, uh, this weird design one. But anyway, let's get right to it. After a uh, mostly full page of text, which I believe the gist of it is some, like, purple prose about magic. Uh, not the character, the actual, you know, mystic whatever. Now, we arrive in Otherworld. And suddenly, it's making a bit more sense to me as to why this was the last issue of Dawn of X I actually read last year. This isn't any fault of the creative team, but, uh, I mean, this just isn't a concept that, you know, outside of very few examples, I find all that interesting. Here we meet uh, Morgan Le Fay. There's a character who, no matter what story she pops up in, no matter what publisher is publishing her, no matter what it, what type of media, she's never managed to interest me in the slightest. Anyway, Camelot is under attack. Morgan is leading a fellow named Sir Gaharis down to the Pool of Avalon, and he demands that he looks inside. And she does this by dunking and holding his head under the water. Now, it turns out we've got us a Krakoan gateway in the drink. Before we go any further, let's meet the cast of this issue. We've got Betsy Braddock, Rogue, 
Gambit, Jubilee, Apocalypse, Trinary, and Brian Braddock. Then, our double page spread of creds and back to comics. We're at the Braddock Academy in England. Betsy is preparing to head off to her new life on Krakoa, and uh, she's no longer in her Asian body, and uh, for the life of me, I do not remember when that happened. I, I, I remember it happening, I, or at least hearing that it happened, but I don't know how it all went down. Anyway, she says goodbye to Brian, Megan, and their sprightly children before heading toward a nearby Krakoan gateway. She and Brian talk a bit about their brother Jamie, and how if a paradise like Krakoa were around, it might have kept him on the straight and narrow. And, uh, yeah, it's that kind of thing like where you're watching a TV show and they mention a character you haven't seen in a long time, and then before you know it, boom, there's that character. More on him in a bit. Meanwhile, on Krakoa, Trinary approaches Apocalypse, who's considering this odd new Krakoan gateway that's popped up. Oh, and also, he doesn't want to be called Apocalypse anymore. Now he's going by dot dash dash hash a hash dash dash dot. Uh, Trinary is not sure she can pronounce that, and I'm going to take a stab in the dark here. I'm going to assume that his name just sounds like Mallory's boyfriend, Nick, from Family Ties, where he just goes, hey, that's, that's what I'm thinking Apocalypse is going to go by for now. Now, Trinary reports that she, Sage, and Cypher tried to diagnose this new gate, but it was to no avail. Apocalypse, or, or A, posits that it might be something beyond science. Trinary continues claiming that they were unable to find out where this gate leads, to which A suggests it could very well be Camelot on Otherworld. So he got it in one. As he attempts to access it, he discovers that there has been a barrier built to keep them out. And so they're going to need a champion who can breach it. From here, we jump to an info page straight from the Krakoan grimoires, and uh, I'm sorry, this is a boring one. Um, it's what is above is below. Uh, it just feels like we're eating up a page. Um, back to the story. We're at the Fair Green Hall in North Yorkshire, where this coven of witches called the Coven Solar Blackwood are, you know, doing coveny stuff. They are visited upon by Morgan Le Fay, who has come with uh, something of an ultimatum for them. She wants this gateway destroyed, and claims that until it's done, no mortal will be able to channel the magic of Avalon, which would, you know, make for a pretty boring coven of witches. Well, a more boringer <laughs> coven of witches, I suppose. Now, the witches aren't too sure, as the flowers Morgan shows them are of the new mutant species. LaFay ain't going to take no for an answer, and she refers to the mutants as witch breeds, so I guess I guess that's a new one. Back on Krakoa, Betsy's arrived. She no longer wants to be called Psylocke, by the way. Uh, what's the deal with this? I mean, we got Call Me Kate over in Marauders, we got Don't Call Me Cyclops, and we got Refer to Me as A. Feels a little artificial, uh, but, uh, you know, what do I know? Anywho, she's approached by Jubilee, who's looking to get a little bit tipsy. Betsy asks for directions to the nearest mimosa tree, so uh, that answers one of my questions from Marauders Number 1. I guess Krakoa isn't a dry county. Uh, maybe they just don't have uh, Wolverine's favorite brands in stock. I don't know. Now, before Betsy can tip one back, she's approached by Old GB, Gold Balls. Well, actually, he's undergone a name change himself, thank God. He's now going by Egg, which, you know, still an awful name, but... World's better than, you know, dur her shiny testicles. 
uh, he asks Betsy to accompany him to the hatchery. Upon arrival, we see the latest hatchling, and it's that weirdo Jamie Braddock. From the sounds of it, he's been doing some pretty gross stuff in his already gross hatchling pod. I really don't even want to hazard a guess. Uh, he's also slipping, sipping a brandy or something, so at least the customer service is, is good at the hatchery, right? Yeah, might give him a good review on Yelp or something. He hops out, and Betsy does not seem happy in the slightest to see him. They chat for a bit anyway. Jamie wants his return kept secret from Brian, but Betsy says Brian deserves to know and that she will not lie to him. And then she gives her weirdo weirdo brother a uh, psychic zap and walks away. She is then approached by A. He takes her to this odd new magical Krakoan gateway and suggests that that they're going to need some kind of magic to make their way through. Magic in the form of Captain Britain's amulet. Betsy's all, whatever, and heads back to Brian's estate to inquire about borrowing it. And I mean, this is only a few pages after she left, so it feels like we're going back to Braddock's a bit quick. Um, I mean, how can they miss her if she won't go away, right? She arrives and sees Brian getting into his Captain Britain togs. He can tell that there's something bothering his twin sister, but she shrugs it off and just says that uh, she was so taken aback by seeing him back in uniform. He informs her that he's been called to Otherworld. She informs him that she's coming along. She uses some Krakoan costume tech to Sailor Moon herself into uniform, and off they go. Upon arrival, the Braddocks find themselves ambushed by Lafay and her creepy coven of dorks and LARPers. She brings them over to the Avalon Pool to show them the witchbreed pollution and reminds Brian that he is her most loyal subject. She demands he hunt down the witch breeds responsible, even if that means he starts with his own sister. Back to, back to Krakoa. Mr. and Mrs. X, uh, are, are Gambit and Rogue married still, or did I dream that? Was that something that happened? Uh, they're on the beach talking like they do. Rogue suggests that perhaps they get to work on the third law of Krakoa, which is make more mutants. I thought that was the first law, but I might have read it wrong. Before they can get down to business, they are interrupted by Trinary. She takes them to A and the Otherworld Gate for a chat. Apocalypse feels as though uh, something has gone wrong on the other end, and he wants to use Rogue's abilities in an attempt at weakening the magic that blocks them from entering. Gambit is not down with this plan, but Rogue will do whatever it takes to help Betsy. Gambit suggests they enlist Jubilee, who is the last person he saw talking to Betsy, which makes me just thankful he didn't see her chat with Gold Balls and her weirdo brother. Otherwise, they might be entering the scene. He calls Jubilee, who stows her son Shogo somewhere before attending. Now, I don't know if we're supposed to think Apocalypse might have some sort of vested interest in Shogo, or if just Jubilee's being extra careful because this is Apocalypse, right? She's pretty useless here. She has absolutely no information. He tells Rogue to apply her gifts to the gate. Gambit looks on and says if this goes sideways, he'll kick the big A's ass. To which, he smiles, thinking the threat is quite adorable, which, if we're being honest, it kinda is. Back in Otherworld, the Braddocks fight off the LARPers for a bit, until Morgan Le Fay manages to corrupt the captain. He apologizes to Betsy before shoving the Captain Britain amulet in her face. Back on Krakoa, he has managed to make psychic contact with Bets, and he tells her that she, she needs to disrupt the gateway. So, she does so with her psychic blades. Now, this causes the Krakoan side of the gateway to explode with, like, vines and stuff. The vines tangle Rogue up, leaving her in an unconscious and naked state. 
Also, the busted update has made it so Bestie, Betsy might just be stuck on Otherworld forevermore. Or at least for the next page or two. Now, she fights Lefay for a bit, and it looks like the LARPers are down for the count. Uh, she then snags Brian's Captain Britain amulet, and it looks as though Brian is doing anything he can to fight off Lefay's corruption. She drapes the amulet around her neck, and things begin to glow. Back on Krakoa, Rogue is still KO'd and entombed in those vines. Gambit attempts to make good on his threat from earlier, which is, uh, well, just as adorable as we thought it would be. Then, Betsy Braddock arrives as the new Captain Britain. That's not the end, though. We follow one of the coven LARPers into, the, into a tower. She's got a bag full of those Krakoan data crystals that we've seen, you know, throughout the, uh, you know, the last several episodes. And uh, atop the tower, she's surrounded by people wearing sheets. Huh, did we just get the answer to a certain sinister secret? And she's offered a place among Coven Akaba. And Akaba, I know we've heard that word before. One more boring info page, and we are out of here. So let's have a, uh, a spot of tea and talk about this. Uh, now, I do want to preface with uh, my customary, by no fault of the creative team line here, uh... This issue was, in my opinion, probably the weakest Hox Pox Docs issue up to this point. Now, I know I complained a whole lot about, like, X to the third power during those Powers of X issue, but, I mean, at least those were contained to, like, just a third of an issue. Uh, this, I don't know, it just, uh, it didn't feel important. Um, now, I shared uh, Jason Colby's email last episode where he mentions that, uh, you know, Hickman had whetted our appetites for the extraordinary, and uh, some of the post-Hoxpox offerings have not been that. And uh, this didn't feel, at least not to me, extraordinary in the slightest. Um, and I'm, I'm totally open to this just being my own personal taste. And I actually hope there are folks listening who did enjoy this a whole lot more than I did that would, uh, you know, want to discuss it. I mean, we're talking about Otherworld and LARPing witches. <laughs> That's just going to be a tough sell to me on the best of days. Uh, it also feels like a particularly strange way to launch a series, right? I mean, I could certainly see people coming in fresh from House of X, Powers of X, taking one look at this, raising an eyebrow, and putting it right back on the rack. Because it's... It's weird. It's just... But not the weird that we saw in X-Men number one. This is just a different thing altogether. Now, this isn't to say it was a bad issue at all. You know, I, I not at all. This was this was decent. It's just kind of a tough sell. There were things in it that I liked. Uh, just getting reacquainted with all these characters was really nice. Uh, it gave me that, you know, first day of school after summer vacation sort of feeling. Um, you know, seeing Rogue and Gambit together, even if I'm not entirely clear on what their official relationship status is, that's just really cool to me, and it takes me back to some of my earliest days, you know, as an X-Fan. And, I mean, so much of uh, their relationship informed, you know, the way I looked at comic relationships. So it's it's really cool to see him them here together. A Jubilee? I don't know. I guess uh, maybe I don't like her so much as, a, like, a full-fledged grown-up. Um, is she still a vampire? Uh, <laughs> What a what a horrible decade the 2010s were to be an X-Man. That uh, was a Victor Gishla, whoever. Oh, that kicked off, uh, what was it, X-Men Volume 3. That stuff was painful. 
Let's talk about Call Me Betsy. Uh, have we just become, like, too cool for good old-fashioned code names? I mean, not for nothing, Psylocke is one of the cooler names out there, and it... I remember it took me a while to realize what it meant. I, I always heard that it was a play on words, and I'm like, how does that even make sense? But when you think about how there's a Psyche, you know, Psyche, Psyche, uh, Psylocke. You know, once I figured that out, I thought it was, like, the coolest and cleverest thing going. But, uh, but you know, on that subject here... I'm pretty sure that uh, Quanan or Revanche or whatever the hell her name is, I think she's starring in Fallen Angels, so maybe she'll take up the Psylocke name. Uh, or maybe we'll just lose a really cool name. I don't know. But, uh, I don't know. It feels like we're getting a lot of that with uh, people changing names and, and, you know, Kitty's now Kate, Apocalypse is and, well, Gold Balls is Egg, and that's better. But just feels weird to me. Um... Otherworld. Uh, now, the only Otherworld stories I really can get into are the ones that play off, like, what a weird and whimsical place it is. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about the Alan Davis stuff from the first volume of Excalibur back in the long ago. This, eh, you know, I hate using, I hate using terms like heart, but it didn't feel like there was any. Uh, where, if you look at those old Alan Davis stories... Otherworld had so much heart, so much just weird soul to it, and this just feels, I don't know, it just feels like a, like an episode of like a CW show. Plus, you know, Morgan Le Fay, she ought to like wear a t-shirt with a warning that she may cause drowsiness. She's just so dull. And again, I do want to make sure I say this is by no fault of the creative team. These just aren't concepts or characters that inspire all a whole lot of interest out of me. You know, different strokes and all that. I totally understand and respect that there are folks who really, really enjoy this. I'm not one of them. So what else we got here? Um, Gold Balls is now Egg. So that's a value-added move, I'd say. Uh, I'm sure Mr. Bendis, if he still bothers to read X-Men, which he probably doesn't, uh, might be a bit torqued. But, uh, you know, Gold Balls was probably the weakest attempt at low-hanging... <laughs> See what I did there? Comedy in X-Men history. And that's saying something. Um, I'm, I'm glad he's not Gold Balls anymore. Uh, Jamie Braddock's back. Uh, he's always been kind of a boring character to me, too. I can kind of take him or leave him. I, I do like that his favorite Beatles song has come together. I, I remember reading that in a Claremont issue. But other than that, he's you know just there. He's a weirdo in a diaper with a mustache. Uh, Jubilee not trusting Apocalypse, or... Uh, I promise I'm not going to do that. Maybe I will. Who knows? Uh, I really like this. I, write, I like her not trusting this guy. Um, unless, of course, I'm reading too much into the... Too, like, a, just a throwaway line. But it really got my imagination going. Thinking that maybe Apocalypse has some designs on Shogo. Now, I don't remember a whole heck of a lot about Shogo. I think he first showed up in one of the latter two equally awful and pointless, adjectiveless X-Men volumes. And I could swear I remember seeing him floating, unless I'm conflating him with Joy Boy from TechNet, which is certainly a possibility. I, I do like Joy, Joy Boy. Um, but I think this is a very interesting bit, if I'm not reading too much into it. So... We'll 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 put a pin in that, and we'll uh, we'll you know we'll come back to it as we as we go along. Rogue in stasis. Uh, we spent a lot of time on this program talking about stakes, right? 
this sort of just is what it is. I'm not worried in the slightest about whether or not she'll pull through or come out of it, because I'm like 110% sure she will. The real point of interest for this, and, and this is something I want to make sure I give credit for, I'm going to hand it to him, is, you know, we know that the stakes, the stakes of life and death are non-existent right now with uh, with the resurrections happening with the hatchery we know that we've made peace with that we're moving on the stakes that we have now are are like what what what's gambit going to do while she's entangled in, in comatose you know it's like uh this is like taking a page out of like the the, the new hickman method here where we're where we're addressing the scenery rather than the actual life or death you know stake um, and I like that. I think this is uh, where the more interesting story threads might be. Where we've got Rogue who's down and out, but instead of focusing on whether or not she'll come out of it, we can maybe shift shift focus over to Gambit and see what he is going to do about it, see how he reacts. And I like that. I will definitely hand it to them for that. Overall, uh, you know, <laughs> the... The more I talk about it, I feel like I like it a little bit more after actually piecing it out. But uh, that said, it still didn't rock my socks. But at the same time, I can't say that I'm mad at it. Um, it's definitely, in my opinion, the weakest weakest outing to this point. And so, you know, like the next issue of Excalibur might not be one I'm looking forward to quite as much as I am the next issues of X-Men or Marauders at this point. And, you know, maybe when we're done with round one of Dawn of X, I'll rank the books in the order that I enjoy most enjoyed or whatnot. I don't know if there's any interest in that. Frankly, I don't even know if I'll remember. So <laughs> if I do, we'll do that. If not, pretend I never said it. Uh, now, before I let you all go, got a little bit of feedback here to cover. Our friends uh, Dallas Gibson and Lamar have sent in uh, some messages. So we'll start with Dallas. He says, listening to episode 12, and from my point of view, everything that has happened in X Comics over the years is legit. It may turn out over the span of dawn that not all happened in this cycle, but Mora's knowledge of past lives is the building blocks of the present, and as readers, we share that info. Excellent point. It's an excellent point, and it's a point of view that I wish I had. I mean, I, and I'm, I'm contradicting myself here. When I said I didn't want the hard and fast list of what happened and the list of what didn't and the timeline, I said I didn't want that, but... I feel like we went so far the other direction that I kind of need it. I wish I could let go and just enjoy these as stories, which, you know, much, uh, you know, more well-adjusted people can do, <laughs> I'm sure. But uh, but I'm trying to think here, because, I mean, we've gotten some glimpses into the past, and I'm trying to figure out, like, where do certain events... Does it make sense for certain events to have happened? You know, was there a trial of Magneto? You know, was there a Days of Future Past? It was yeah, we know Proteus was born. It was was Legion born. Did Legion happen? Um, I think there's just a lot of questions there, and I, and and even if if Hickman just says yes, it all happened. It, it's you know it all happened. You just fit it in wherever you see fit. I'd be okay with that. But uh, the fact that I don't know, and like we might find out that maybe Extinction Agenda happened in Moore's fifth life. Maybe the Phalanx Covenant happened in Moore's third life. You know, I, I I don't know how I feel about all that. And uh, 
like I said, more well-adjusted readers can probably make that uh, can make peace with that. Where I am far too curmudgeonly and too much of a stickler uh, to to just just not know. Uh, and I mean, that's part of the fun. Uh, it's part of the fun. It's part of the frustration for me. Um, more from Dallas, he says, uh, when we eventually see one of the mutants that Mora doesn't want on the island make it to Krakoa, it's gonna blow the lid off, and I can't wait. Couldn't Destiny see Mora's past lives? That's, that's like a little bit foggy, because I do know that when we saw Destiny and Mora, I think that was Mora's third life, that Destiny knew Mora's Power, but I don't know if she necessarily saw the past lives. I, I kind of hope she did because I think that opens up a whole lot of interesting possibilities. Because, I mean, and this is me totally, you know, armchair booking here, but it's like all we have from Mora is her word, right? I mean, what if Destiny shows up on Krakoa and tells a different story than Mora? Maybe we find out Mora's lying. About certain things Maybe she's, you know, she's got machinations of her own I think that there's a lot of meat on that bone And I think that could be very, very fun Uh, Dallas wraps up with She could spill the beans on all the previous horrible acts Of mutant-on-mutant atrocities and whatnot It's very exciting And Hickman wouldn't have mentioned it If it wasn't planned down the line 100% right Uh, You know, uh, Destiny We have, uh, what is it, Chekhov's Destiny here Uh, You don't mention it if you're not going to use it And the fact that we did get a mention of Destiny Toward the end, or I think it was The very last issue of uh, House of X, Powers of X That tells me that We're eventually going to be seeing Destiny And uh, and just like Dallas, I can't wait I think that's going to be That's going to be one of those uh, You know, my famous uh, You know, shoe drop moments Uh but I think that's really cool. Thank you, Dallas, for uh, for writing in. That's a lot of food for thought there, and uh, it, it's things that I didn't consider. It's uh, it's I say it every episode. It's why I love this feedback section because I'm seeing things that I'm not seeing. <laughs> I'm learning things through this. Um, I'm just so stuck in my ways where I where I try to fix a meaning to things that might not have it, and then I I miss things that do have meaning. It's so I, I'm so thankful. That, uh, that folks like Dallas are writing in to, uh, to give me a hand here Let's go to Lamar uh, He says, thanks for the shout-out I'm not going to stop listening He says, also, regarding Sabretooth's punishment He's put into stasis, right? So while he's there Now this, now this here I'm, I'm, This is me cutting in This part blew my mind Because I didn't even consider it he says, uh, Lamar says, while he's there Krakoa can suck his life energy Like he did in Giant Size X-Men I never even thought of that. I mean, how cool is that? That's that's basically what Krakoa does, and I didn't even consider that as an option for uh, you know the purpose of stasis, you know, or, or just not maybe not the purpose of stasis, but a byproduct of having them in stasis. I mean, they're down there. They're down there for Lord knows how long. Xavier said indefinitely, unless they think of a, a time to that he could be redeemed. Why not feed? That's a, that's such an awesome awesome idea, and I I'm kicking myself for not having thought of it myself. So thank you guys for writing in, and thank you for opening my my eyes to things that I missed. That's just so awesome. 
But I think that's where we'll put a pin in this for today. Uh, you're, you're all getting out early for uh, good behavior. <laughs> We're not even going to break a half hour today from the looks of it. So that's uh, that's good. That's good. Um, uh, Excalibur number one. Decent. Decent. Not my favorite. Certainly not. But uh, uh, if you guys agree, disagree, uh, have anything to say, please, please do not hesitate to reach out. Uh, you can find me at Ace Comics on Twitter or weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find uh, the notes to these shows at chrisandreggie.podbean.com or chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. And we also have the dedicated X-Lapsed page at xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. But I think that's all I got for today. I want to thank you all so, so much for hanging out. It uh, really means the world to me. And uh, till next time, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 20 of X-Lapsed, and this is a, uh, a special late evening edition, or at least late evening recording. Uh, I'm trying to find a time to record this show where uh, the air conditioner doesn't kick on every five minutes, so <laughs> I'm going a little bit later in the evening. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I am living in Arizona, and uh, one thing about Arizona, even at the end of September, it is very, very hot. Uh, we are still over 100 degrees Fahrenheit here, and will be if the uh, if the Weather Channel app is right for uh, at least another week or so. So yeah, this is a little bit late in the evening, and uh, hopefully <laughs> you won't be hearing uh, my roaring air conditioner uh, at least as often as uh, as you might in previous episodes. But uh, we got uh, well, we got a banger today. Uh, this is. Uh, of course, episode number 20, we are discussing Excalibur number 2, or Excalibur volume 4, number 2, perhaps. Uh, January 2020 cover date. The story is called Verse 2, A Tower of Flowers. Written by Teeny Howard, art by Marcus Toe, colors by Eric Archaniga, letters VCs Corey Petit, de- design Tom Muller, head of X, Hickman edits Bisa White Sabolsky. Cover price, $3.99 American, on sale November 20th, 2019. 
let's hop right in. We open up in flashback land, and it's uh, the 4th century BC, or BCE if you prefer, and uh, a set of mutant twins is uh, preparing to set sail on the English Channel in a tiny ramshackle raft. Once they get going, they don't make it very far because, uh, well, they suck at making rafts. Apocalypse, we can still call him that since this is a flashback, he watches as they dip into the drink and drown. He does nothing to help them because, you know, survival of the fittest and whatnot. I, uh, I find it interesting, not, not so much interesting, but uh, they do make sure to say 4th century BCE here. And uh, I, uh, when I went back to college, it was around 2011, or it was not around 2011, it was in 2011. And uh, they were in the process of like updating all of the texts from BC to BCE at that point. And I remember a lot of people being very annoyed. Um, and then people being annoyed at the people who were annoyed. And it just became this cluster of people annoyed at everybody for, I guess, at the end of the day, they forgot the reason why they were annoyed. But uh, anytime I see BCE, I'm always, I always, I'm always reminded of my, of my return to academia and uh, the little, you know you know, a little uproar that, uh, that I faced there. And I, all I wanted to do was read my book and, and take my tests and write my papers and, and just get the hell out. But, uh, other people were, uh, very, very into the argument, but, uh, let's move on. Now to the present, our Excalibur crew is on Kitty Pride's boat and they actually call her Kate. So how about that? I am still going to call her Kitty. Uh, they are in the Atlantic off the coast of Cromwell, England. Now, Kitty's all excited to see the old Excalibur lighthouse and says she hasn't seen it since the last time they blew it up. And now, as part of another show on this channel, From Claremont to Claremont, an X-Men podcast, we read the issue not too long ago where TechNet sent hard-boiled Howie, or Henry, (laughs) into the lighthouse to blow it up. So I wonder if that's what she's talking about. I think that was Excalibur number 42 uh, from uh, 1991, because after that, they got, like, the the high-tech... Um, sort of look, mushroom-looking uh, lighthouse that TechNet helped them build, but uh, but I wonder if that's what she's talking about here. Anyway, let's meet our cast. We have Captain Britain, who's Betsy. We have Apocalypse, who is not called a here. Jubilee, Rogue, Gambit, Shogo, and Kate Pride. Uh, Double page spread of creds, then back to comics. Now Gambit is still fretting about Rogue being, well, you know, all comatose and floral. Uh, Jubilee expresses some concern about Shogo being left on Krakoa. Now, she claims that Todd is safe, hidden away from the hands of Apocalypse. She further claims that Shogo is also safe from Gambit, whatever that implies. Um, Suddenly, the boat is overcome by... Selkies? Oh, come on. Uh, Betsy informs the team that the Selkies are from an old Scottish story, and they are, quote, a sort of seal people. And, uh, And so they fight. Uh, Betsy finally deduces that it's her thereafter, and to draw them away from Kitty's tub, she dives into the drink. Then, like a moment later, she's up on the cra- uh, crag of rock. Then she TKs the rest of the team, minus Kitty, to the rock with her, and Kitty sails to safety as intended. Now, the Selkies, being seal people, cannot climb the crags, and so the, teal- the team is safe for now. There is, however, no Excalibur lighthouse here, which is sort of suspect because they thought it was going to be here. From here, our trio, Betsy, Jubilee, and Gambit, they each pick up an end of floral slumberette rogue, and they head toward the top of the crags. Why they don't just TK her there? I don't know, it was good enough to get her off the boat. Oh well. 
Suddenly, Captain Britain notices a whole slew of cloaked figures walking ahead of them, and uh, she is the only one who can see them. She rushes up to one to ask who they are and where the lighthouse went, and she's clued into the existence of the dread Mariana Stern. I know what you're thinking. No, no, not Mariana Stern. That sounds like the scariest PTA mom you'd ever meet. Uh, now Stern is, uh, you know, the she's part of that coven. That we, we saw her at the end of last issue of Excalibur Where she ran up the stairs and all that stuff She had the, the crystals, right? Now Stern, we hear, gets her powers from Morgan Or Morgane, however they're spelling it here Morgan Le Fay, of course uh, Now the druid then tells Betsy They will allow her to plant some Krakoan fruit here In order to protect the land Betsy reports this to all her teammates And confirms that Morgan's agents have burned down her family's castle uh, Gambit ain't buying it And he just kind of assumes she's having a fit or something And uh, it's always interesting Seeing the cynic in a story That's like completely based in magic And mysticism It's like have you not seen everything else that's gone on here Gambit you just fought selkies And, and this is where you draw the line Anywho They set Rogue down atop the crags Where suddenly her floral tomb grows into A brand new lighthouse looking thing now, Gambit worries that the light atop the lighthouse is rogue. Uh, well, let's have us an info page, straight from the grimoire of A. It's a, well, it's a schematic of a lighthouse, sort of. Uh, there's some mention of those dead twins from the opening flashback. Uh, maybe they've been reformed into crystals? I, I don't know. This is really... <laughs> this ain't my kind of story, and it's, uh, it's losing me. Um, now, inside... We get a scene of our trio of X, X-Men slash Excaliburites chatting, which, I mean, these are my favorite sorts of scenes. Uh, I love these scenes where uh, where the, the team just talks, and uh, we get to see them converse and uh, interface, you know? Now, this one, it's not half bad. They're all sort of on edge, and they're snipping at one another. Uh, Gambit's still freaking out about Rogue. Jubilee's still worried about Shogo. Betsy's just trying to figure out what in the hell's exactly going on here. They all ultimately decide to, you know, give it a sleep. They're going to try and get some sleep, figure it out in the morning. Later, Jubilee wakes up only to find A holding Shogo. She rushes toward him, but is frozen in her tracks. A notes that Shogo is human, and uh, he might not be too keen on a human living in his mutant paradise. Okay, so Shogo is human then. I, I could have sworn I saw him floating at some point, but maybe he was just caught up in... Somebody's telekinesis bubble or something, I don't know Or maybe, just maybe, I was actually confusing him with Joy Boy from uh, TechNet Who knows Uh, This is ultimately revealed as having been Jubilee's nightmare So Jubilee actually wakes up, gets out of bed, and she sneaks out of the lighthouse We just had one dream, let's have another This one, Captain Britain's Now she's in a field following a flaming wolf with a sword on its back They come to a statue of a... It holds a fruit-filled plate with the words, He will use us, dash, we can use him, etched on it. Betsy takes a piece of melon or something off the plate and bites into it. Uh, the flaming fox, or wolf, tells her she can trust it before Betsy is stirred awake by Shogo eating her hair. You see, after her nightmare, Jubilee snuck back through a Krakoan portal to pick up the tot. Though, she promises to drop him off again when the going gets tough, which, duh, it soon will. Now, Betsy, Jubilee, and Gambit head to the top of the lighthouse. Uh, Seems like they all had pretty weird dreams, though we're not privy to Remy's. 
Uh, Jubilee and Gambit talk a bit more about their worries to the point where the latter has to make it clear that, you know, this isn't a competition, you know, to see who has the bigger problems here. We're not in a contest. Uh, then the druids show up again. And uh, we have uh, Betsy goes to greet them, and she's informed that the enemy is the coven Akaba, Akaba, however you say that. Of course, now, Akaba is not an unfamiliar term for us here. Uh, Mora was, you know, Mother Akaba in a life, uh, her ninth life in the uh, year 100. Uh, the druids, they yak on for a bit until the coven descends upon them, and, uh, well, of course, they fight. Now, Captain Britain keeps on keeping on when suddenly the voice of A floods her head. She asks if, uh, he asks if she needs his aid. She says no. He reminds her that her brother is still being corrupted by Morgan Le... She still says no. He then tells her that Coven Akaba used to report to him. They were ordinary humans who used magic to put them on par with Homo Superior. They thought that this would cause A to spare them, and it did not. Oh, and also, A himself might be responsible for that Krakoan Gate in the Avalon Pool and Otherworld that we saw last issue. He again asks if she needs his help, and she is not keen on giving him the big thumbs up, but, I mean, at this point, it feels like she's really running out of tricks. Now, A vows to protect the lighthouse while Betsy and the gang head into Otherworld to shut down Morgan. Betsy still refuses to enlist his aid. Before we know it, A arrives anyway, and uh, the first person to see him is Jubilee, and she is none too pleased. A approaches Captain Britain and tells her it's time for her to do the whole, you know, otherworld thing to save Brian. And uh, she insists, still, she doesn't want his help. He manifests a giant glowing hammer and assures her that the lighthouse will remain standing while she's away. Betsy finally relents and she begins begging Gambit and Jubilee to accompany her. Neither of them want to go, you know, since Gambit doesn't want to leave Rogue and Jubilee damn sure doesn't want to leave Shogo with the big blue bad guy. Uh, Betsy manages to convince them. You know, they, they can't do anything about Rogue, but it looks like Shogo might actually be going with them to Otherworld, um, maybe by way of Krakoa. Who knows? Uh, now we wrap up with the trio stepping through the portal, and on the other side, Jubilee realizes that she's no longer holding the baby. Just then, a giant green flame-breathing dragon appears, and it says Shogo, which is, of course, the only word Shogo knows how to say. Okay, uh, now the issue closes with a waste of an info page that just gives us the lyrics to a druid lullaby. Um, I did the, you know, the requisite quoted Google search to confirm whether or not this was a real druid lullaby. Nothing came up except this issue, so I'm guessing it's not real. But that's, uh, that's Excalibur number two. So, uh, I've got a question. Uh, wh where's my X-Men comic at? Um, I'm trying to be as optimistic as possible here, you know, uh, trying to take things as they come, leave all my preconceptions behind, but, uh, what is this? Selkies? Druids? Uh, have we stumbled into a D&D &D campaign? Um, I hope this isn't how the entire series is gonna go, and I hope that this isn't informing in any way what X of Swords is gonna be. I really want more characterization. I want more time with these people without this, like, weird magic overtone. Um, and I don't want to slight the creative team, and I don't want to say this was bad, because it's not. It's just not for me. Uh, this is not a take on the X-Men that I necessarily need. Um, thinking back, I'm reminded a bit of... 
Oh boy, what was it? What the, what the guy from Conan? Uh, Kulan Goth. Kulan Gath. Uh, there was a story, an X-Men issue, a couple of X-Men issues, uh, probably around like the 180s, um, with Kulan Gath in it. And X-Fans seem like really split on that story. Some absolutely adore it, while others, like me, like might just skip it entirely during their X-Men rereads. Uh, this just isn't the sort of like trapping that I want to see the X-Men in. And again... No fault of the creative uh, Just a story that's barking up the wrong tree When it comes to my own personal tastes um, Not not the kind of thing I'm looking for Unfortunately That said, I love the art uh, Marcus Toes or two I gotta figure out how to say his name Marcus's work really pops off the page here uh, He made a story that, you know, as mentioned Was pretty uninteresting to me He seemed very visually appealing um, let, Let's keep... On the side of positivity for a little bit Let's talk about his uh, place Among this team uh, Unofficial or not Or official or not, I guess There's one aspect of the story that really shines to me um, He's a very tricky character He's just he's very, very, very tricky um, I mean, let's take Let's take the the Between the between the covers thing out of here for a second Now, do we as readers trust him? Should we trust him? I mean, is he being honest and truthful that he only has the mutant's best interest at heart? Or is he in this for himself? I mean, I hate to go to the old uh, the old Chris Chestnut here, but are there more shoes left to drop, you know? Um, now, just like us, to, let's take it into the book here. The other characters in the book have this trepidation towards him, you know? Uh, Betsy flat out refuses his aid until there's, like, just, she's absolutely left with no other choice, right? He basically shoved her through the portal when you think about it. It's clear that A.E. has his own machinations and motivations, but uh, I gotta say, it's been a really good time trying to, trying to like, suss them out uh, along with the rest of the cast. Uh, if I'm gonna give this, uh, this issue high marks on anything, this would be it. This is definitely the strongest part of the issue by far for me. Um, I did enjoy the brief bits of interaction between Gambit, Jubilee, and Betsy, though, as mentioned, they were very, very brief. And they were also kind of bitey at one another, which, it can work, right? You know, that, that sort of thing can work. I've, we've, I think we've all read issues where, you know, two characters on the same team are in the middle of an argument, and, uh, and, and they're just, you know, debating. And that, that can work. And that can work with the X-Men, that can work with these three characters, but here... It just felt a bit repetitive. I mean, how many times on a single page do we need to confirm that Gambit's upset and worried about Rogue? It's like, dude, we get it. You said it two panels ago. And you said it two panels before that. And you're gonna say it in two panels from now. Very repetitive. Um, also, Betsy's got like this weird aloofness that seemed a bit off-putting. Um... Where she's kind... I mean, she's got a lot on her plate, right? But still, she's kind of dismissive of Gambit and Jubilee's worries. Uh, no matter how many times they explain them. Because they explain them quite often. But she was just kind of dismissive of it. And uh, I don't know how I feel about that. Overall, um, this wasn't my favorite. And I can't say as I'm looking forward to seeing these characters fight the big Shogo dragon next issue. Which I'm assuming is going to happen. Or... I, I can't even hazard a guess, but uh, this is uh, not my kind of X-Men story, um, unfortunately. Uh, it, it does a lot of things right, 
but it also does a lot of things that I just don't care about. Now, uh, that is Excalibur number two, and uh, before I let you go, let's touch on a little bit of feedback. We got a letter from Damien, which, as luck would have it, is discussing the last issue of Excalibur from episode, uh, what would it have been, 15? Episode 15, Excalibur number one. Now, Damien says, Excalibur is a difficult book for me. I have a certain amount of affection for some of the characters, and I like to see comics set in the UK. But a lot of the characters in this team have been broken by continuity. Rogue was one of my favorite X-Men right up until that Jim Lee issue where she throws herself at Gambit at a picnic. I know I lost this battle decades ago, but I really can't see the Rogue I knew falling for Gambit. And uh, that's uh, that's actually an issue. Uh, that's X-Men Volume 2, Number 8, that I did a long-form episode of Chris's on Infinite Earths on. Well, it was originally an episode of Remarvel before I folded all of the Remarvels into my Chris's on Infinite Earths legacy number. Uh, thanks for the idea there, Marvel. Uh, it's episode 40 in the archives, if anybody's interested. Um, now, that's that issue and story is very special to me. Though, you know, I it's worth noting that I did come into comics around this time, and so it really informed my takes on characters like Rogue and Gambit. So I didn't have the years of familiarity with them, a rogue specifically, that, that you did. It's also a, a notable issue for me because this this issue, X-Men Volume 2, Number 8, was my first ever, you know, white whale, my comics white whale. I searched for this thing for a couple of years before I found it. I was able to find everything I wanted except for X-Men Number 8. And uh, that search... For this issue is a big part of that episode, episode 40 of Chris's on Infinite Earths. Uh, I mean, while I'm while I'm plugging myself <clears throat> in front of everybody, uh, for those who've never listened to like the the Chris's on Infinite Earths show, those are sort of like half and half shows. Uh, they usually open with me telling an anecdote that could uh, either be like serious and personal or you know just plain silly. Then I tenuously tie that anecdote into a comic book. Um, I think I've uh, I think I've described those episodes as emotional shiatsu massages because <laughs> I uh, I come away from them pretty much completely drained and, and usually in some kind of pain. Uh, it, it's great fun though. So if you if you haven't listened to a Chris show, uh, well, this little plug probably won't inspire you to. But they're there if you want them. And uh, that episode in particular, Chris is on Infinite Earths, episode number forty in the archives. Now, back to Damien's message. He says, I really enjoy the Captain Britain mythos. The Alan Davis issues where Betsy became the captain and lost her eyes were fantastic. The idea of her reclaiming that role and succeeding this time is very appealing. And I think these were before my time. My, you know, strictly UK Captain Britain comics knowledge is pretty sparse. I have to admit that. It's really confined to the to the Alan Moore collection that Marvel put out, like right after Jemison Casada took over, uh, where they famously like they did the one thing Alan Moore asked them not to do, or they didn't do the one thing he did ask them to do. They left his they left his uh, name out of the Indicia as a like a creator. Um, so that was uh, that was you know I think that was the olive branch that didn't quite make its way to uh, to Alan Moore from Marvel, uh, turn of the century Marvel. So. I read that, and I also read an Alice da- Alan Davis collection from probably, boy, when was that? Um, the collection was probably from the mid-90s, so somewhere before then, I guess. I, I too, really enjoyed them both. Um, 
And actually, that Alan Moore, uh, the Fury storyline was actually set to be a long-form episode of the Cosmic Treadmill that I was really looking forward to doing because uh, that one, that's a that's a story that, you know, people, when you think about Alan Moore, people pick out things like, you know, like Watchmen and stuff and uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and uh, V for Vendetta as their favorites. And mine uh, are Miracle Man or Marvel Man and uh, the Captain Britain stuff here because... Somehow, he was able to turn this character, the Fury, who you'd never seen before, and you only saw, like, once again uh, when Claremont came back in uh, the mid-2000s, uh, that he turned this Fury character into something that was actually scary, you know? And I had no reason to think that Captain Britain wasn't going to survive, but, you know, when you're reading it, you had doubts. It was so well done. So well done. Uh, back to uh, Damien. He says, uh, Apocalypse has been fascinating fascinating in Hoxpox, so I wanted to see what happened next. And 100% agreed. Uh, Apocalypse bits have been some of the most interesting stuff so far. Uh, in, in this issue, that's, you know, my favorite part of this issue is the, uh, is the weirdness around Apocalypse. Now, uh, Jubilee, oh, back to Damien, he says, Jubilee had been slightly rescued in the Generation X run by Christina Strain, where they removed her vampire curse, but also maneuvered her into a mentorship role. And uh, I dropped that legacy-era Generation X series like a hot rock. <laughs> I did not like it. Uh, I was so excited for it, too. Um, you know, Generation X was like my New Mutants title, you know? Uh, came out in, what, 94-ish, 95-ish. All the characters were my age. You know, I was 14, 15 years old, and I, I just loved it. Uh, also, Generation X was my first, like, real exposure to the work of Chris Bacciolo, or Bacciolo, another guy whose name I can't say. But I can read it, and I can type it on a screen. I just can't say it. Uh, so, uh, uh, Chris Bacciolo, uh, however you say that, is... Uh, Definitely in, like, my top three all-time comics artists. I just absolutely adore his work. Uh, one thing about it is it always reminds me of Autumn, which, I don't know, makes me feel happy inside for some reason. Uh, back to Damien. He says, uh, Marcus Toe, or Two, is a great artist. I remember seeing his early work thinking, here's another sub-Majuara manga artist, but he's really grown into a phenomenal talent. Teeny Howard has written stuff I enjoyed, too, so that was hopeful. Unfortunately, they fell into every trap I saw ahead. I became more and more convinced that Americans should not be allowed to write comics set in the UK. Creating stories that combine Arthurian legend with the modern UK is not easy. And the thing of, the thing of it is, with me personally, I couldn't even tell you if a comic of that stripe is good or bad, because to me, it's just, it's just not my kind of comic. Um... Uh, back to Damien, he says, Paul Cornell managed it with MI-13, and Kieran Gillen managed with Once and Future, but most fail. Even Alan Davis chose to make Merlin and Roma into sci-fi characters to make it work. I have to admire the bravery of attempting to try and combine all these things, but I just can't accept stories where my homeland is presented as being a place where the Queen and Captain Britain are keeping us safe from evil witches and druids. And <laughs> I never considered that, you know? You look at this, and... I mean, it is kind of a distillation of, like, things American think when they think of England or, <laughs> or the UK. It's, I, I can totally, absolutely appreciate how that might be off-putting, and that's just not something I ever considered. But, I mean, it is, they're kind of like going the low-hanging fruit here, right? Um, 
I never, I never considered that. It's, it reminds me if, if anybody listening is like into anime or manga, um, whenever they want to do like the American stereotype, they just, they always have us like depicted as cowboys. So <laughs> I can get, I get that that's a bit annoying. Um, yeah, that is, that, that's funny. I never thought about that. Um, now, uh, to wrap up Damien's message, he says, By the way, I demand you keep saying Apocalypse's new name like that. I like to imagine he's using his shape-changing powers to do the most enormous Fonz-esque thumbs, thumbs up every time you say it. And so, yes, the, uh, the Nick from Family Ties slash Arthur Fonzarelli A will remain, because, uh, I mean, this is an Arthurian story after all, right? And we have an Arthurian Fonzarelli. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for your uh, for your message, Damien. I love hearing from you, and uh, I, I love your insight because uh, you're you're picking, you're, you're showing me things I miss, and you're telling me uh, you're, you're going through your prism. Looking at a book like this is uh, is fascinating to me because you're picking up things that I wouldn't even think twice about. So thank you so much for your message. Uh, we'll wrap up today with a short uh, excerpt from a conversation I had with my buddy Walt, uh, Walt Nealon from Comics Reviews by Walt. Uh, this is a reference to an episode where we talked a little bit about uh, the illegitimacy of the, uh, I think, what did they call it, the missing decade or whatever, uh, the post-Avengers vs. X-Men stuff. Now, Walt says, the post-AVX's illegitimacy, I can see that. I read a bit into the now stage, but I'd be quite content to go AVX to Hox Pox Docs. Um, and uh, the reason I'm including this here is because it gave me this weird mental exercise where I was trying to see what like value-added stories we've gotten since AVX until Hox Pox Docs. And uh, I'm having a hard time. Uh, I... You know, as much as I hate, like, the whole meta-commentary in comics, or I don't hate it. I just think it can be over-relied on and maybe a little too cute at times. But they, uh, there was that, that uh, panel in one of the Hoxpox issues that had the Phoenix Five. You know, you had Cyclops, Namor, Magic Colossus, and uh, the White Queen in their Phoenix attire, you know, in, that, toward the end of uh, Avengers vs. X-Men. And they called it something like the Missing Decade or the Lost Decade. And... Uh, I think I made a remark about how you know, I wouldn't mind if that was actually a lost decade. And with Walt's comment here, I'm trying to think if there's anything anything worth saving since AVX. You know, I thought like, oh yeah, well, I, I enjoyed Wolverine versus the uh, Wolverine versus Wolverine and the X Men, but that actually came first. That came before AVX. That actually led into AVX. And uh, I'm trying to think if there's a single thing about the X-Men I would like to hold on to uh, between, what was it, 2012 and 2019. And I can't I can't think of a damn thing. Uh, I will admit that I was a fan of, like, the first, maybe first dozen issues of all new X-Men, the Bendis stuff with the, uh, the original five coming up from the past. I thought it was novel, and I just enjoyed... I enjoyed the take, uh... It wasn't until like the voices of all these characters kind of kind of shifted, you know, um, to I don't know. They didn't feel like when they came, they kind of felt like themselves, right? You know, uh, you had Cyclops, who was like this sort of he was the leader, of course, but he had this youthfulness to him where he was uncertain of himself. Uh, 
you know, they all just felt like they were literally yanked out of an issue of, uh, you know, the first 66, right? Then something changed. <laughs> and it, they, I think it's safe to say they overstayed their welcome. I think Marvel might have been a little surprised that it was as successful as it was, relatively speaking, because, I mean, the X-Men were not a top priority. Um, but it was good, clean fun at first, right? Um, it was just an interesting little take here, and I wasn't expecting it to last for, I mean, it lasted for, what, six years? These other characters were here? Ridiculous. But uh, I'm trying to think of anything else I'd keep. Um, I enjoyed Jeff Lemire's extraordinary X-Men run Not not all of it, because a lot of it was tied up in, in crossovers But what wasn't tied up in crossovers I enjoyed um, But other than that, boy <laughs> Maybe we can call this a lost decade Because uh, I can't think of any If anyone listening has any anything to point to You know, from... From AVX to Hox Pox Docs, that's worth reading. You know, outside of the stuff that's leading up to House of X, Dawn of X, uh, like, you know, Andrew and Belfa- Belfast mentioned uh, the Extermination uh, miniseries that, I, that I'm going to be, I'm going to hopefully be reading pretty soon. I've got the trade here. Um, also, The Resurrection of Phoenix, that miniseries I've heard a lot of good things about. But other than that, I'm, I'm kind of at a loss. So, uh, yeah, if, uh, if you agree, disagree, let me know. Let me know what, uh, what your thoughts are on the, you know, the quote, lost decade. Uh, what you guys liked, maybe what you guys didn't like. Maybe you agree and just be like, eh, let's get rid of it. Let's jettison the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to hear. Uh, so, on that note, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter. Or at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You could find show notes and all the uh, stuff at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Uh, there's also the xlapsed page, xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. If you want to chat us up on Facebook, 90s X-Men is the group where you could find uh, me and a bunch of people <laughs> who talk about X-Men sometimes. So if you're interested in joining the conversation, please feel free. The complete audio archives for the Chris and Reggie channel are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Current shows going on. We still have moratory Mondays for a few more weeks until we uh, wrap that that show up. Uh, The latest episode had a wonderful part one of a QA and a we had with uh, the original artist of Strike Force Moratory and the co-creator, Brent Anderson. I think that's... uh, a lot of really good information there. A lot of fun getting those answers and being able to share them with the listener. So if that's something you might want to hear, it's there for you. ChrisandReggie.podbean.com But I think that's all I got for you today. Uh, the next episode, we will be taking a look at Marauders number 2, which I am very, very, very much looking forward to. So till then, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Uh, welcome to episode 27 of X-Lapsed, where we're going to be discussing one of the Betsy books. We're talking about Excalibur, volume 4, number 3. Now, this one had a February 2020 cover date, and uh, if you've been following along with this show, you know the Betsy books are usually at the bottom of the stack for me. So, uh, let's see if this one uh, if this one maybe uh, changes its fortunes a bit, or if it, uh, you know, falls exactly where I might think it will. Uh, the issue is called Verse 3, Three Covenants, written by Teeny Howard, art by Marcus Toe, colors by Eric Arsenaga, letters VCs Corey Petit, designs Tom Muller, head of X is Hickman, the edits are Bisa White and Sabolsky. Cover price $3.99 American, this went on sale December 4th, 2019. Looks like December 4th was a pretty, uh, pretty expensive day for ex-fans at the comic shop. We had a... I think all three books we've discussed over the past three episodes have been that same day. Anyway, let's get into it. We uh, get our usual three comicless pages out of the way first. So we'll start with our roll call. We've got Captain Britain. Of course, that's Betsy. We got Apocalypse. And, uh, I mean, they're still not referring to him by his new name on the roll call? Hmm. Uh, Jubilee, Gambit, Rogue, Shogo, Richter, Morgan Le Fay, Mariana Stern, and Brian Braddock. Then we get those couple of pages of credits, and then, believe it or not, comics. So we open at an apartment building, where a man is watching the television news while trying to work up the gumption to take a single step outside. The news is talking about Krakoa, naturally. I mean, what else is going on? Uh, More specifically, however, the proximity of of Krakoan gateways to schools. Because it would seem some mutants ain't wearing clothes when they emerge out the other side. Uh, We get... We get some man-on-the-street dialogue from someone who proclaims that, in America, we keep our clothes on in public. And uh, this feels kind of like it wants to be one of those like really played-out Merca jokes. Um, but it's uh, it's kind of hard to argue with this attempted straw man if we're talking about mutants running around you know, stark raving naked outside of buildings full of children. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Or maybe I've just been beaten over the head by... Uh, by straw men in comics over the past decade or so. Uh, anywho, you want to meet who is the occupant of this apartment? Because uh, it's actually a fellow we already know. It's Julio Richter. And you see, it seems as though he's no longer in full control of his earth-shaking powers. You see, with every step he takes, the ground begins to rumble. So he laments his current lot in life as he receives numerous psychic invitations to Krakoa, but he just can't bring himself to go. He throws himself down on his bed, and which we can see is, like, mostly rubble. We get an info page because we couldn't possibly get more than three pages of actual comics content in a row, and here we get a mutant message board. Oh boy, I wonder if we're on the dark web. I mean, that, that's where we hang out. Uh, no, it's actually just a regular site. Uh, it's actually mutantsunmuted.com, which, if you enter that into your favorite browser right now, it redirects to Marvel's Hoxpox page, so... I guess they they did the uh, they did the extra work and they they bought the domain. 
Now this looks like a very sparse sort of message board, uh, kind of evocative of the old Usenet BBSs I used to spend many, many hours on back in the mid to late 90s. Um, anywho, we get a member here announcing that they're using a throwaway account, which feels more reddity than Usenet-y, um, because back on Usenet, I mean, those were... If someone told you I'm using my real name, you'd probably faint. Um, now this person, using the throwaway, inquires about potential power surges since Krakoa did its thing. They don't get much of a response, though in fairness, they weren't all that specific about, uh, you know, as they should have been when describing the problem. Somebody writes back and says, hey, what, what kind of po powers do you have? And they don't want to say. Um, I'm assuming this is Richter's throwaway. I mean, there's really no reason to think it's anybody else. Next, we jump from the somewhat interesting to, well, Morgan Le Fay. We're back in Camelot, and she still can't seem to purge the scrying pool of the Krakoan weeds. You see, every time it's clean, they just keep coming back. Morgan asks a, uh, you know, a knight <laughs> of some sort to fetch her mirror, and she does the uh, the mirror-mirror thing in order to con make contact with the, uh, you know, the scariest of all PTA moms, the dread Mariana Stern. Uh, Stern assures Le Fay that she can count on the coven Akaba, uh, and it's all very boring. Uh, this conversation is thankfully interrupted when Morgan notices a great big dragon flying past her castle. Oh yeah, the dragon! I nearly forgot about our great big cliffhanger from last issue. So yeah, baby Shogo turned into a dragon in Otherworld. But despite the gravity of last issue's final panel, it really ain't no big thing. You see, Shogo's a baby. Fairies love babies. Otherworld's full of fairies. Ipso facto, Shogo could be whatever the hell he wants to be when he's in Otherworld. And from the looks of it, he wants to be a dragon. Now, Jubilee is nervous that Shogo might get hurt. Betsy assures her that Shogo will be fine. Gambit continues to whinge about leaving Comatose and Floral Rogue alo alone with Apocalypse. And so, a page of bickering ensues. Then, Dragon Shogo offers to fly our trio to Camelot to try and rescue Brian Braddock. Speaking of Brian, we get a full page of him bound and chained within Camelot. Really not sure why he's being chained, since every word coming out of his mouth seems to be exactly the sort of thing that Morgan would like to hear. He's More or less, he's saying he wants to kill Betsy, and I think that's what uh, Morgan wants. Now, our trio of heroes arrive at Camelot and are immediately engaged in battle with a whole fleet of knights, and they're soon overwhelmed. And uh, by soon, I mean like less than a half dozen panels into the fight. Betsy asks Jubilee if Shogo could take part, considering, you know, he's a giant fire-breathing dragon. Uh, after some hemming and hawing, Jubilee relents, and Shogo returns to the fray and, uh, well, you know, fire-breathes. But then, Brian Braddock arrives, clad in black armor and chains. Betsy then delivers what uh, might be the line of the month. She says... Brian, my beautiful brother, what have they done to you? Okay. Uh, now the Braddocks cross swords for a bit before Shogo intervenes with some more fire breathing. Our heroes hop onto the baby's back and beat a hasty retreat. Now Betsy doesn't want to leave, but at this juncture she doesn't have all that much of a choice. As they fly away, Morgan psychically speaks at her, toasting to their respective reigns as reluctant warrior queens. I think this was supposed to feel a bit more meaningful than it actually did. Though, in fairness, I'm having a hell of a time connecting with this story at all. 
How about an info page? Let's do an info page. Uh, now, this is an Otherworld-themed document for MI13, Black Air, and the like. Uh, what, no weird happenings organization? I think that's the only one they left out. It's pretty dull. Though, again, these are not concepts I've ever been able to really connect with uh, in my decades of reading the X-Books. I, I don't care about MI13 and, and their, their ilk. Um... Now, this document lists some known Otherworld assets, and it's basically a who's who from the old-school Marvel UK and Excalibur. Uh, we got Brian, Betsy, and Jamie Braddock. We got Megan. We got Morgan Le Fay. We got Kitty Pride, Courtney Ross, so the, the Saturnining is beginning. We got Rachel Summers. We got Nightcrawler. We jump back to comics, and we're back at the lighthouse, and we see a about to step through a Krakoan portal. He arrives in a park, maybe Central Park, uh, they seem to go there a lot. Uh, he saunters through some crowded streets before arriving at an apartment building. And duh, it's Richter's. He invites Julio to Krakoa and assures him that there's nothing that Richter might break that he can't fix. And so Richter decides to come along. Which makes it all the more surprising when they step through the portal and arrive back in Cornwall, England. You see, Richter expected to, to be uh, chilling at Carousel, it seems, and he's a bit disappointed. He wants to go where the party's at, and it sure isn't here. Now, even more disappointing for all of us involved is the fact that upon arrival in Cornwall, they are greeted by MI-13's finest, Mr. Peter Wisdom. And that's where we end it. The next book we'll be covering is New Mutants number 3, but how about we talk about what we just experienced here. Now, Betsy and Morgan had their little seem like a goodbye, kinda. And if this is truly the end of our time for with Morgan Le Fay for now, I think I'll give this book top honors for the number threes, the Dawn of X number threes. I'll put this at the top if we can get rid of Morgan for a bit. Can, can we, like, stuff her and Otherworld into a drawer for just a little while? Uh, I mean, these bits are just outrageously dull. They're almost aggressively boring. Um, so if she's gone, I think we can officially bury the hatchet with this little series here. We'll, 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 we'll go into it with a whole renewed vigor <laughs> with, uh, with, episode, with issue four, you know? Um, but where to begin with this issue? I suppose we could start with the cliffhanger from last issue. It, uh, well, it resolved itself pretty quickly, and I mean, the way it all worked out was fine enough, right? Pretty inoffensive and uh, kind of silly in a way that I like seeing Otherworld. You know, I don't like seeing Otherworld as anything but silly. I mean, this and this was so silly, it could have been a beat from an old Alan Davis issue or something, and that's not a bad thing. I'm totally cool with ramping up the wackiness in, uh, in Otherworld, rather than, you know, Morgan Le Fay staring into a scrying pool. That, that's the, that, could just, uh, that can go kick a cow. The Battle with the Knights, it ate up pages, I guess. Um, really didn't do a whole lot for me. Uh, and it didn't feel all that final, you know? I think I think it was supposed to be like evocative of like a very climactic scene, and it just didn't come with any of that oomph. I mean, Betsy just cries over her beautiful brother, and uh, and they X their swords for a little bit, right? <laughs> that's That's what they do. Uh, now, as we become accustomed, this issue shined brightest while A was on panel. Though the Richter opener was really good, too. I like that. I remember reading somewhere that he was part of the team. Uh, I think he's even on the cover of Excalibur number 1, so it's cool to finally see him within the pages. I, and 
to be honest, I'm interested in seeing where his story goes alongside uh, A. I am a bit less interested in hanging out with Pete Wisdom for the foreseeable future, though. Um, I feel like Wisdom, he's a character that can be interesting, you know? Um, it seems like only when a certain guy is writing him, because I think that he might be somewhat of an author insert for this certain guy. Uh, this Warren Ellis, of course. Um, I think Pete Wisdom really worked best in the original his original run, uh, throughout Excalibur back in it was probably the late 90s at this point it feels like everyone since who has had wisdom in their books have been trying to recapture what Ellis was able to do with him and to this point in my opinion no one's been able to and uh, I'm not all that confident that this next bit will change my mind uh, if uh, these past three issues are anything to go by overall though Warts and all, uh, my complaining and all, this is probably the strongest issue of Excalibur yet. Though that isn't exactly setting the bar all that high. Um, scary but true, I think I might actually slot Excalibur number three above whatever the hell X-Men number three was all about If when we do our list at the end of the week. Um, I'm looking forward to what's to come in hopes that we might get an issue away from Otherworld because I, you know these are characters I enjoy. I enjoy... Most of this team, right? And uh, we just haven't been able to get them in the uh, in the context that I want to see them just yet. Uh, the other world stuff just kind of gets in the way to me. It's uh, it's the kind of scenery that I just get kind of stuck in and I get bored by. But uh, that said, it probably doesn't sound like I liked it all that much, but I actually liked it better than the previous two issues of Excalibur. So we're headed in the right direction. But, uh, I, wow, this, this might actually be the shortest episode of X-Lapse yet, because we're through the book, um, and it's been quick. Uh, but before I let you go, let's hop into the mailbag here. We got a, uh, we got a double take from Damien today, and, uh, the first one will be regarding X-Force number two, and he says, And we come to the first Dawn of X issue I have read solely to follow along with X-Lapsed. I know your biggest fear is an X-Men reboot, but reading this one, I wish we could reboot Beast. I know he's in character, but I want him to be the happy-go-lucky guy from the Avengers and early X-Factor. I agree 100%. Um, This might just be me projecting, but I feel like writers have been using Beast for at least the past decade or so in order to channel... some, some of their more, like, skeptical points of view. And I don't mean skeptical... In purely the religious sense Um, I mean just He's kind of become Their I I hate the the Mary Sue Or whatever but He's just there to give their point of view I feel And uh, I think and, and, And it's smart to use Beast Because I think they realize That the readership respects Beast As a character And as such he's the best choice To be the one who who can question everything and who can um, voice dissent in a uh, in a logical sort of way? That said, while I agree that he's the best one to like funnel that sort of stuff through, he's been an absolute bore to read for as long as I can remember at this point. He's not fun. He's not silly. He's just kind of that pain in the ass know-it-all. Um, I think I mentioned the last time we discussed Beast and his portrayal, he's just the kind of guy I'd hate to be stuck in an elevator with at this point. He just seems like a really, really annoying guy. 
Um, I, I mean, even if we go back to like right after Dark Reign, where you know where they were going to make Marvel fun again with like the heroic age. They threw Beast into Secret Avengers, I think it was, back when they launched like 700 new Avengers books. He wasn't fun there either. <laughs> it wasn't fun. It wasn't interesting. It was just more of the same. Um, it's almost like he he might be beyond repair at this point. Uh, though, again, again, I might be projecting here. I, he is a character that I, I've, I've loved and I've enjoyed. Um, he, he's... I own... I own two Funko Pops, and uh, one of them is Beast. You know, I I really do enjoy the character when he's uh, when he's on point. You know. Now, uh, Damien continues. You're right that Kid Omega is the best thing in the issue, but this really isn't enough to make up for all the gory body horror. Yes, they are pretty liberal with the gore here, aren't they? Um, I can't say that I'm much of a fan of that myself. I mean, and this might just be me, my my weird addled mind here, but uh, I don't get the fascination with making everything look like meat. Like, I wonder if there's some sort of subconscious reaction to seeing sentient meat <laughs> that just makes us feel Ill, feel like ill at ease or just plain ill. I, I'm reminded of growing up and seeing uh, Doom Patrol covers, like the Grant Morrison run of Doom Patrol, and like. It felt like everything on the covers was, like, made out of, like, meat, or looked like meat. Uh, again, maybe I'm just a weirdo. But that actually kept me from trying Doom Patrol until I was a little bit older, because it was just I, it was just so ugly. Um, and, I mean, you look at it now, or I look at it as a grown-up, and it's, it's some very, you know, it's some very impressive work. It's just not the kind of thing you want to, like, really, you know, feast your eyes on. Uh, back to Damien, he says, I was par- particularly surprised that Xavier hasn't been resurrected yet. I just presumed he'd be walking around again before the credits. And yeah, that was my main worry as well. I, I really thought they were going to pull the gotcha straight away just to further drive home the point that, you know, the stakes have changed, right? I mean, that's kind of the gimmick here. So I was, uh, I was pretty surprised myself. Uh, Damien continues, uh, I really don't recall his death being mentioned much in the books I kept reading. It's odd that only Kitty Pride has been shown reacting. Maybe I skimmed over those scenes. And yes, Kitty uh, reacted in Marauders number two before she, uh, you know, went and, and got tattooed. And uh, we saw Magneto kind of brooding for a little bit in Fallen Angels number one when he met with Psylocke. Um, other than that, I mean, the mutants are still dancing a carousel, right? <laughs> so it mustn't be all that big a deal. Uh, it, it is very, very strange that that this is not... It's not being reacted to. I mean, Black Tom feels guilty over it, but it doesn't seem like anybody else is all that bothered, which, I don't know. That, that, that makes me want to get my umbrella, you know, just to, to, get, to, to dodge them shoes. Uh, Damien continues, and he says, I suppose I need to go and read Fallen Angels number two now, the things I put myself through to keep up with X-Lapsed. Well, by now, you know... All about how I felt about uh, <laughs> about Fallen Angels number two. So consider this my belated apology. I am sorry. <laughs> now, while on that subject, how about we check in with Damien again and see how he felt about Fallen Angels number two, eh? He says, you're incredibly fair-minded about Fallen Angels number two. It's possibly the worst X-book I've ever read. Which, uh, I, I took that as a challenge. And I thought... Hmm. Thought to myself, self, let's find a worse X book. 
And so I really racked my brain trying to think of some worse X-Books. And uh, immediately my mind went to went to uh, the the X-Fan killer. You know, I, I've met I've met a lot of folks who were into the X-Men, really, really hardcore. And so many of them left at this one particular point. And uh, if you know the name I'm about to say, you could say it with me. Chuck Austin. Um, I My mind immediately went to Chuck Austin. And uh, I think I enjoyed Chuck Austin more than I enjoyed this Fallen Angels. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying that. I mean, there were scenes in that Chuck Austin run where Archangel... Archangel had sex with Husk in the sky in front of her parents. I mean, that was a scene that happened. We had the Draco, or the Draco, however you say that, revealing Nightcrawler's father was the devil. I mean, there was a lot of garbage in there, but maybe that was like the car crash kind of comics, where it's like, you can't look away, and at least you get some enjoyment out of making fun of it. Where Fallen Angels is just something that is dull and takes itself very seriously. Um, so it's hard to even enjoy making fun of it. Um, so yeah, the Chuck Austin run, I think I'd slot that a little bit ahead of this. Uh, maybe the latter half of Mutant X is worse. Now Mutant X, (laughs) for folks who don't remember it, well, A, congratulations, and B, Mutant X was, uh, was what flew out, or it spun out of, uh, X-Factor. The uh, first run of X-Factor, I think it was cancelled with issue 147, 148, maybe 149. Um, And instead of getting... Yeah, it was 149, because instead of getting 150, we got Mutant X number one. And in that, in the final issue of X-Factor, it looked like Havoc died. But in reality, he was sent to this other unit, this other dimension. The Mutant X dimension here. And that's where you saw, like, Bloodstorm, the Vampire Storm, and, like, an amphibious beast, and... uh, I think it was a vampire angel too. It was, or like he, it was an angel with bat wings or something. It was, it had a good five or six issues, but by the end of it, the whole thing was about a war between the United States and Canada. The Beyonder showed up. The Beyonder turned out to be Madeline Pryor, and then Dracula showed up and bit like everybody, turning them into vampires. Havoc got bit at least once. It was just a disaster. So maybe. Maybe Mutant X is worse. Maybe Mutant X is worse. Uh, and that was, uh, of course, written by Howard Mackey. So we can stick with Howard Mackey here. And we can look at The Brotherhood, which was uh, also written by Howard Mackey, but he was so tarnished by Mutant X that he couldn't even sign his name to it. So it was The Brotherhood was actually written by someone named X. X, the, 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 the secret writer, who was eventually revealed to be Howard Mackey to the surprise of nobody. That was pretty bad. That was pretty bad, but but again, is that something that is so bad that we can laugh at it, right? Um, then there's X-Men Unlimited number four. A book so bad that the writer of it went on Usenet to make fun of it under a, uh, under a, under a screen name, under an, an assumed name. Uh, Scott Lobdell wrote it. It was garbage. And he went on to Usenet under the name Kid York to make fun of it because it was that bad. I don't know. So maybe, if anybody out there can think of something worse than Fallen Angels, and 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 if you really enjoy Fallen Angels, I'm just I'm, I'm I'm sorry. I'm just making I'm just having a good time. Uh, but 
I mean, even the X-Books that caused me to recently run for the hills, you know, X-Men Blue, X-Men Gold, I can't outright say they're bad, right? Uh, they, they definitely weren't for me, but they weren't exactly what I'd consider to be bad. So, uh, yeah, if anyone out there can think of anything worse than Fallen Angels, Fallen Angels number two in particular, reach out and let us know so we can, uh, <laughs> so we can uh, you know, spread the word. Uh, back to Damien's message here. He, uh, he did his rankings from best to worst for the issue number twos. His number one was Marauders. Number two was New Mutants. Number three was X-Men. Four was X-Force. Five was Excalibur. And six was Fallen Angels. And uh, we're not that different. Our Marauders are out, of, uh, are out of order, but everything else seems to be in line. Uh, Damien continues, uh, or he wraps up with, uh, So reading along with you has made me appreciate X-Force a lot more, and we really don't agree on Marauders. I'd put money on your top book changing for the number threes, which I'm guessing that is to say that I'm not going to enjoy our death burdening in New Mutants number three. (laughs) Well, we'll find that out next episode, because that will be the topic that we'll be discussing. Hopefully, uh... Hopefully I'll be able to get something out of it. Uh, (laughs) Or maybe, just maybe, I'm setting my expectations so low right now that anything that happens will be good. You know, we'll just have to wait and see. But I think that's where we'll wrap it up today. If uh, you'd like to get a hold of me, a hold of the show, uh, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find the show notes and the good stuff at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com and xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can find the audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, where you can find thousands of hours of audio to fill thousands of hours of your time. Um, also, uh, I am, as mentioned, I'm using the Cosmic T-Mill Twitter account to uh, to reshare the archives. So maybe open up to uh, a new a new audience. Uh, you know, let some folks who might have missed some of the older stuff know that it's out there. So uh, if you're not following there, maybe give it a follow. You might uh, you might find a show that uh, might, might find a show that interests you that you didn't know we had. Um, Facebook, find us at '90s X Men, and uh, yeah, I think that's it. So before I uh, cut you all loose, just one more giant thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, This episode actually is the one-month anniversary of this show. Uh, The first episode hit on September 1st. This is October 1st, so made it a full month, 27 episodes. Not Not a bad thing. Not a bad thing. So thank you all for being with me on this journey. Thank you all for reaching out. Thank you all for, uh, for listening. And, uh, Till next time, I will uh, talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 32 of X Lapsed, where we are covering one of the Betsy books here. This is Excalibur number four, and it had a February 2020 cover date. We'll uh, we'll hop right in. I don't have anything to complain about today. The weather is uh, well, it's still over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, but it's not. I don't know. I haven't been outside as much, so it's not bothering me quite as much as it was uh, the other day. Uh, this one is called Verse Four: Fall Back and Think of England. Written by Teeny Howard, with art by Marcus Toe. Colors by Eric Arshaniga. Letters, VCs, Corey Petit. Uh, Corey Petit's been pretty busy over the past few uh, <laughs> few episodes. Uh, designs, Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Edits, Beast So White Sabolsky. Cover price, $3.99. Went on sale December 18th, 2019. Now, before we hop into the book, let's, uh, let's look at the cover. Uh, I mentioned this last episode. When I first took, you know actually took stock of the cover and didn't just, you know, file it. Um, I assumed that this featured Betsy fighting that baby Shogo dragon that we ran into uh, last issue. Thankfully, that doesn't quite turn out to be what happens here. But unfortunately, it kind of feels like they might have used the cover for the wrong issue. But uh, we'll get there. Um, and I mean, that's not even like... That really even matters anymore, right? What, what good are covers in current year anyway, huh? As long as it's a... Uh, it alludes to something, I guess, right? Anyway, we open it up. And we see Gambit having a one-sided chat with the comatose rogue atop that Krakoan lighthouse. He tells her that he's got just got some business left to do with Betsy. Back, uh, he's got to attend to it in London, and then he's done. Then he's going to devote all of his time to shaking Rogue out of this spell. We follow Gambit all the way to the gates of Buckingham Palace, where there are some raucous anti-mutant ralliers there, uh, rallying, as they do. Now, this is the first scene of the issue where I feel like maybe the art isn't quite up to the standards we expect from uh, from this this art team, right? Uh, We have a bystander hurling a bottle at Gambit, and Gambit, as quick as a cat, he catches it, charges it, and throws it back. But this whole action looks very, very wooden. Uh, zero feeling of movement. Uh, everything felt very, very static. Um, lifeless. Uh, no emotion. It was just kind of just there. Uh, just didn't really work for me. Now, while on that subject, I know anti-mutant rallies are something to expect when reading an X-Men book. And it makes complete in-story sense for us to be seeing them. But I'm kind of having that, you know, hail on a tin roof sort of reaction to them here. Uh, I feel like there's just too much of it. Um, I get that they're there. I get, you know, that it makes total sense. It's just kind of tiresome. One good thing about this page that I will give it is that uh, when Gambit sees the crowd, he greets them with a, which, you know, made me peek around the panel for Apocalypse, uh, which makes absolutely no sense to anyone except for listeners of this show. Okay, anyway, how about we get the three pages without comics on them? Let's do it. First, we got our roll call. Gambit, Rogue, Richter, Jubilee, Betsy Britton, Pete Wisdom, Apocalypse, Megan, Jamie Braddock, and Marianna Stern. Then we got two pages of credits. Then we got comics again. 
We hop inside the palace where we see Jubilee having a chat with Richter. They talk about something here that's always kind of boggled my mind. And uh, really the reason why I tend not to be specific when discussing anything having to do with England, Great Britain, or the United Kingdom. Because, to be completely honest, I'm not a very worldly guy and I don't know when or how to apply any of those words. (laughs) It's uh, always eluded me. I just never figured out what goes where and how. Um... Jubilee and Julio, how unfortunately, they really don't help my worldly education any here. It's uh, it's just as uh, confusing <laughs> after their chat. Um, now, Richter, he says, it looks like he's already been fixed, right? Uh, last issue, he couldn't leave his apartment for fear of, you know, shaking the world around him. Uh, he really can't explain uh, why or how this is. All he says is that uh, he listened to him, and I guess that was enough. He suggests, even though he doesn't really like the big blue guy, that maybe Gambit ought to consider bending his ear as well. And uh, this bit of the conversation gets interrupted by an explosion outside, and I'm going to put money on it being Gambit's charged bottle, because of course it is. Now this results in Gambit, Jubilee, and Richter fighting off the anti-mutant protesters, which, I don't know, I mean, I know we've got Krakoan diplomatic immunity or whatever it is, but wouldn't an explosion outside the gates of Buckingham Palace be terrorism? Or at least considered an act of terrorism? Like, like, shouldn't there be, like, military and police just swarming the place? I mean, there might be an officer or two here, but it's mostly just our heroes fighting civilians. Um, really weird. Uh, the brouhaha is broken up by the arrival of Betsy Britton and Pete Wisdom, fresh off a chatting up the Queen. They're swarmed by the media. So, uh... Were were these reporters and whatnot involved in the riot we just saw? I don't know. Betsy joins her crew, reveals that they are now accountable to the Queen, tells them that she had to fill out a bunch of Captain Brittany paperwork, and then officially christens her team Excalibur. Then, an info page. A boring info page that uses the word otherworld about 50 times. Um, Back to comics and back to the lighthouse, our team discusses their next move. Now, Gambit... He naturally wants to save Rogue. He really doesn't care about anything else. He agrees with Gambit. If you recall, he needed Rogue for something way back in the first issue, so he's pretty keen on, you know, shaking her out of her stasis. Betsy, however, has a more pressing engagement to attend to. She's got to meet up with the meanest PTA mom there is, the dread Mariana Stern. And she's got some coven crap to attend to, which I don't care about. But at least we're not in other world. Uh, Pete Wisdom says he'll be accompanying her, so at least the scene will probably have a twinge of aloofness to it. He claims that he now has need of Gambit and Richter to procure some items secreted into the ground, and uh, we'll get there. But first, let's head back to Krakoa with Jubilee and Shogo. Upon popping through the portal, she runs into Megan and the, and the Braddock brat. Megan, who... I'll just say it. Uh, the faces we're getting this issue... I said the art's a little bit iffy. These just aren't up to the usual standard of Marcus Toe work. Uh, The faces are weird. Um, That applies to most of our characters, but Megan especially? Like, it almost looks as though her face, like, melted a little bit and slid down her head and gathered near her chin. It's very, very off-putting. Anywho, she and Jubilee talk for a bit, and we learn that Megan and little Margaret will be staying on Krakoa until Brian returns from Otherworld. Jubilee is certain that it, you know, won't be a long wait. Uh, We also learn that the anti-mutant protesters rallied outside the Braddock Academy. Uh, They're really, really upset that their Captain Britain is now a mutant. 
And part of me wonders if this is like a nebulous commentary on politics. Probably. Uh, this chat is interrupted by our resident pervert, Jamie Braddock, who is looking rather Vartoxian, lounged up, lounged out, wearing nothing but a loincloth and a mustache. Jubilee punches him in the face for being a jackass, which, I don't know, seems like maybe something Jamie would usually pay women to do. From here, we go to an info page. It's the Braddock family tree, and this feels wildly unnecessary. The only thing worth noting here is that Elizabeth Braddock, that's Betsy, Brian, and Jamie's mother, she's got a branch on this tree that leads to nobody. It just kind of fades out. We don't know who or what she sprung from. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, or maybe it just doesn't matter, which is why they didn't include it, but I don't think they'd include the partial line if it didn't matter. So I guess we'll find out, or maybe we won't. Now, we've reached the staples of the issue. And uh, things are about to get a wee bit sloggy. We join Gambit and Richter as they're digging through the underground below the moorlands. They're looking for crystals per A's instruction. Gambit wonders why A needed a thief if they're just going to be taking some stuff that they find underground. It's not like uh, they're taking something that belongs to someone else, right? (sighs) Now, did somebody just roll an 18? Because enter the druids. We've got the uh, worst dungeon master ever here. Richter continues blasting his way down, and they come to a clearing which is full of bones and crystals, and also druids. Richter peruses some crystals that are dull blue in color. Gambit, assuming this is what they need, he he pockets them. Then, more rumbling, but none of it, from Richter himself. It's the druids, and the druids greet Richter as one of their own, because he's one with the ability to wield the earth from birth, He's neither human nor fey. Richter tries to convince them that they're all on the same side. They all have a dislike of Coven Akaba and whatnot, even though the druids don't appear to have come in anything but peace. I mean, they approach Richter and they start dressing him in their in their clothes. You know, they they put this like weird face paint on him. They cover him in a cloak. It, it's like they accept him as one of their own. They then hand our man some glowing pink crystals since. The dull blue ones were just left out as decoys. Now, the druid boss, I think, he then turns his attention to Gambit, who he just refers to as a thief, and a thief must be banished. Gambit is pushed off the edge of an underground cliff and is just, you know, holding on for dear life. Richter goes to help him, but then the earth begins to quiver. Old Julio appears to be losing control of his powers again. But just as Julio loses his control, Gambit loses his grip and plummets into the Great Unknown. We then shift scenes to the meeting house of Coven Acaba, the Valiente Room. Now Betsy and Peter meeting with the dread Mariana Stern and a rather hirsute gentleman named Reuben. Now Reuben. <laughs> Reuben's a pretty glib fella. He's got this like weird passive-aggressive way about him that really seems to get under Betsy Britton's skin. He refers to humility as something far more powerful than any mutant-born ability. Pete Wisdom acts, well, aloof, and he sips his drink. Now, Betsy asks these two why they chose the name Akaba, which only sends old Reuben into another passive-aggressive screed. He talks about how many mutants were probably killed on Akaba before one was born powerful enough to actually do anything about it. This ticks Betsy off, and she gets in the man's face almost proving his point about humility. Even Pete Wisdom tries to get her to settle her tea kettle here. Now, Betsy rails on about having the full support of the crown and how the queen actually defers to her own judgment. 
Ruben, he just sits back. It's like he's given Betsy all the rope in the world to hang herself here. Betsy accuses the coven of being a trap, to which Ruben corrects her. They're not so much a trap as they are a distraction. Now, you see, Otherworld, Otherworld, ugh, is a fragile place, right? And Betsy Britton and company soaring out of it on a fire-breathing dragon kind of damaged the very fabric of the place, which allowed for some otherworldly beasts to break out into the real world. And so we see some giant medieval-looking horrors at various points of interest in the area, including a multi-headed hydra chilling out at Stonehenge. So Reuben gives, gives Betsy a look and is all, is all like, smooth move, Exlax, which uh, causes her to run out the door. We wrap up atop the lighthouse where A.E. is chatting to the comatose rogue about the weird otherworldly beasties that have just arrived on their shores. He alludes to the fact that uh, they're ready for this because, uh, well, they've been waiting for it to happen. Just then, in our final panel, Rogue wakes up. And that is Excalibur number four. The next book we'll be taking a look at is New Mutants number four, which, at this point, I'm guessing maybe it'll feature like a trip to the supermarket with skin or something. Maybe we'll go to the DMV with uh, with Psyche or Sink, whatever the hell his name is. Yeah, I, you just never know what to expect from New Mutants. You know, you expect the Shi'ar and you get something else. So I'm not even going to hazard a guess as to what this issue will be. But before we get there, let's talk about what we just read. So this was probably, no, definitely the strongest issue of Excalibur yet. Uh, we had limited Otherworld stuff, and a fair amount of opportunity to catch up with our cast. I mean, I could do without the druids and whatnot, but other than other than them showing up, I, I really dug this. Um, I really like this Reuben fellow. Uh, he seems like such a jerk, and just the very, <laughs> the, like the very picture of the person you'd never want to be in a debate with. Uh, we have him here, and he kind of plays Betsy like a fiddle, right? It's all very well done. Very, you know, slow burn, letting her just percolate and just lose her stuff. Seeing him hanging out with Mariana friggin' Stern gave me this knee-jerk, I-could-give-a-crap feeling towards him, but it didn't take him long to win me over. His, uh, you know, sort of kind of passive-aggressive, smarmy dialogue was really cool. Uh, definitely the sort of a-hole who could find his way getting under just about anybody's skin. I was also pleased that this scene, in particular, didn't turn into Pete Wisdom being the smartest dude in the room. I feel like that's uh, how a lot of Pete Wisdom scenes go, almost making him like a poor man's John Constantine, which I guess he sort of kind of is in a way. <laughs> um, Gambit and Richter in the underground. Eh, not my favorite sort of thing. Uh, as I've said before, and I probably will again, the druids do nothing for me. Um, being positive, it is interesting seeing Gambit head into a mission at the behest of Apocalypse, however. I, I guess he'll pretty much trust anybody if it means we'll get the, you know, even the slightest possibility of saving Rogue, so that's cool enough. Uh, keeping it with Gambit here, that scene in front of Buckingham Palace, pretty baffling. Um, you'd almost expect for there to be some sort of consequence for their behavior, but it got brushed away pretty quickly. Uh, I mentioned it a couple times during the synopsis, the art. Maybe it's just me, but it doesn't feel like it's up to the level of quality we've come to expect from Marcus Toe. Uh, looks a bit rushed, though I'm probably not the best <laughs> judge for that sort of thing. It just it just looked a step off, is all. It's still, you know, very good, but it's just not what, not what we're used to. Uh, the ending with the dragons and beasts coming through Otherworld, uh, or coming through from Otherworld, that only reminds me that 
you know, hey, we're not done with Otherworld just yet. <laughs> I was hoping with uh, Betsy and Morgan Le Fay saying, you know, see ya. I was hoping we were done for a little while, but it looks like we're not. So despite the fact that I mostly enjoyed this issue, I mean, we still got that uh, that otherworldly specter looming overhead. Um, I do look forward to Otherworld being firmly in our rear view, and of course that is assuming that there'll ever be a day like that. Uh, overall, though, really dug this issue. Unfortunately, I can't say as I'm looking forward to what's to come, because it looks like just more Otherworld and uh, and more Druids, so... I guess we'll uh, we'll take it as it comes, right? Now, before I let you guys go, we got a little bit of mailbag dipping to do, and uh, first we will uh, we will start with Damien, and this is regarding X Force number three. He says, "I have to start by complimenting the cover of this issue. Gene looks so cool, and yes, X Force number three has a really really awesome cover that just leaps off the racks at you." Um, it's, you know, Gene and a Cerebro helmet, but it's got, like, this, like, weird psychedelic mod sort of coloring to it. it. It's really, really cool. It might be the best cover I've seen since the Dawn of X hit. It's just so striking. and just It's just real beautiful to look at. Uh, back to Damien, he says, I was interested to hear you say that the Professor was resurrected quickly. This really stuck with me as I read X of Tens Part 2 yesterday, and one of the plot points was that the resurrections usually take a long time. This is not the impression given here. The only thing that delayed this resurrection was Gene working out how to operate Cerebro. I feel more and more like we're being expected to have picked up plot points that were left out of the books. And yes, pretty quick resurrection, and I haven't read any of the X of Ten stuff yet. Um, and uh, I won't probably until, I don't know, at this rate, December or January. Um... But part of me wonders if uh, there's going to be, uh, like, a reveal that there are, like, always extra Professor X bodies cooking, you know? I mean, we already know that Proteus gets a new Xavier host body every week or so, so maybe that hastened his this particular resurrection process? That is, of course, just, like, my head cannon, You know, the, the, the hamster running on the wheel in my head trying to make sense of it or reconcile the quickness if, uh... If we are hearing that this is a, you know, lab- laborious process uh, for the Resurrections. Because, um, I mean, we don't know about, the, like, the time frame from the Orcus mission to, you know, Cyclops and the uh, the other seven or six coming back. We don't know the time frame on that, really. I, Unless it was, unless I, you know, I am a dense guy, so I, maybe I missed it. But back to Damien's message. He says, the Beast and Gene conversation about death was a weird one. You reacted as though visiting graveyards is unusual. Here in the UK, it's not uncommon for people to visit graveyards or cemeteries for a day out, and a lot of the bigger ones have picnic areas and cafes. They're often seen as just a shared public space. I know when my mom would take me and my sister to graveyards, she would occupy us with looking for the longest-lived person, the youngest-lived person, and for unusual names. Looking back, it's blatantly obvious that she was just getting us to practice our reading and arithmetic. It was all about education with my mom. I wouldn't say spending time in graveyards makes you unafraid of death, though, or that being unafraid makes you more heroic. Surely, true heroism requires some element of personal risk, and that's totally interesting. I've, I've never visited a graveyard outside of, uh, you know, going to pay respects. Um, so I guess, I guess that this show is making me uh, more worldly. You know, by the episode here, via osmosis. <laughs> I'm, I'm being educated vicariously through uh, everyone else's experiences. That's uh, that's very interesting, though. And it does make a lot of sense as, um, 
as practice for math and practice for reading, that makes a ton of sense. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe just being in Arizona, it's too hot to be outside most of the year, so we don't really do that sort of thing. I mean, but even back in New York, we didn't do that sort of thing. At least, I, I guess I was younger. Maybe it is you know common practice here too. Maybe other folks will reach out and let me know. Um, back to Damien. He says, as for your question about deaths, I think Hank is about the only character on this team who hasn't died and been resurrected. So was the only person who Gene could have that conversation with. Such a weird choice. And I hadn't thought about that. <clears throat> now, Beast might actually be like the only legacy Marvel character who hasn't been killed off a handful of times. That's that's a really good point that I hadn't considered. Because, I mean, all the rest of the original five... Has Iceman died? He probably has. <laughs> it's so sad we can say that, right? Our, you know, growing up in the 90s, um, discovering the X-Men in the 90s, it was like... You knew the handful of X-Men that died because, like, they would get a trading card that, like, said that they died. And there would be, like, five of them. Now it's like you could have five trading cards of X-Men who haven't died. And you might have to put Beast on all five of them, for all I know. Um, Damien continues, You're definitely right that these deep conversations are very forced and inorganic. It feeds into the idea that Krakoa is altering the character somehow. In some ways, you have to admire Hickman for setting up the idea that everything is being manipulated by Mora because it means when I read bad dialogue, I wonder if it's a sign that Jean was altered in her post-Orcus resurrection. He's given the creators a perfect excuse for bad writing. <laughs> that's hilarious. Uh, I, I, you know, I wonder if that's the case. <laughs> it's... It's all Krakoa's fault that our characters are all engaging in these wildly unsubtle and awful discussions in X-Force. It's it's definitely food for thought, though. Um, I mean, having a puppet master in the background is certainly one way of lampshading things like eccentricities and out-of-character uh, conversations and, and just out-of-character behaviors. Um, definitely, you know, if that shoe was ever to drop, it would just make everything hunky-dory, right? Uh, everything would make perfect sense because it's, you know, Beast isn't a jerk, he's just being, you know, manipulated. Or Jean isn't being overly flowery and poetic, she's just, you know, this is just uh, the way things are here. Um, Damien wraps up, he says, I don't know if I said it in my recent comments, but I just wanted to thank you again for the amount of work you're putting into this series. It's really enjoyable to be a part of it, and well, thank you. I'm beyond happy that you are a part of it as well. Um, it really means a lot. I always look forward to your messages, and I, and I really enjoy uh, getting the opportunity to respond to them here. Um, I know it might sound, you know, glib when I say I'm learning things from uh, from these letters, but I actually am. You know, I'm actually the takeaways that I'm getting here are helping to make this entire endeavor uh, better, more well-rounded. You know, I'm I'm being able to see. I'm being able to experience this through so many different points of view, and it's just wonderful. It's a real treat, and uh, I really, really appreciate it. Um, this is, I mean, I, what I say about a lot of my work is it doesn't look like much, but it takes a lot of time. And, uh, I mean, the show might not sound like much, but, yeah, it does take some time. Um, I, I think I've mentioned this earlier, but, I mean, I'm setting an alarm to wake up before it gets light out so I can work on my show notes before the day, you know, really starts and, you know, things like work, school and, and, you know, family and all sorts of stuff, you know, start to, start to occupy my time. So it's a, it, it is an investment in time, but, uh, but I feel like I'm, I'm getting as much out of it as I'm putting into it, which, 
is a pretty good place to be. So uh, thank you again for your message, and thank you for always being there. It, it's, it really means a lot to me. Uh, next, we have a message from Al Sedano, and this is regarding House of X number three. Now, he's, you know, he's early on in the series here, which I love, because I think I mentioned this in a previous episode. It's, it's letting me see how someone else is getting is learning about the Hoxpox stuff here. It's it's putting me on the other side of the fence here where I know the stuff that happened in it and I'm getting to see how someone else is experiencing it and reacting to it. So it's really cool. Um, Al says, So it's once again time for me to send you my thoughts. This time it's episode 6 on House of X number 3. First of all, I hope I'm not one of the people giving you clapback about your opinions on the text or info pages. You have yours and I have mine, but it's just opinions. And no, no, no. Uh, this is, uh, when I was talking about that, that was just during, like, the real-time release of these episodes, um, because the feedback I'd received on the info pages was pretty split. Uh, surprisingly split, even. I kind of assumed, you know, Jonathan Hickman, he's, he's, a, he's a smart guy. He's a very smart guy. He's very well-respected by, um, the comics community, online and off. So I kind of assumed I'd be, like, the lone man on an island, like, daring to say anything negative about, you know, this... This artistic or, or literary choice of how to how to give information, how to share information, but I was shocked that it was pretty evenly split. Um, and, and like I said then and now, if I were reading this as a collected edition, or maybe even just reading one issue every couple of weeks as they were released, I doubt I'd even re- realize that there were so many of them. You know, I think the or the like the the pace and frequency in which I'm reading them, I'm reading an issue a day, you know, and then I'm writing a twenty page document about each issue. So things like info pages really, really stand out to me going at this pace. And I think it makes it a little bit more apparent um, because I'm trying to not only receive the information, but then again, share it, you know, with with folks who may not have read this yet, maybe curious about reading it. Or maybe folks who haven't read it, you know, in a year. Or maybe people who are reading along. So I think the fact that uh, I'm doing it at the pace I'm doing it is making, you know, I, I said the thing where it's hail on a tin roof. You know, I feel like sometimes the info pages can be a bit of a bombardment. You know, just a lot of it. Um, back to Al. He says, Now regarding your questions, exactly who is under the Cerebro helmet? I'm right there with you. Is it Xavier? And if it is, what version of him is it? There have been a few. And uh, this was during a point in my Hoxpox discussion where I was I was making hot takes like, like an idiot. <laughs> I was going completely off the rails trying to trying to, like, be right, you know? Um, I took quite a few stabs in the dark on who I thought might be revealed as being under the Cerebro helmet. You know, I was thinking, you know, we were never getting a good look at Xavier's face. So it's like, well, why are they hiding his face? What, you know, could it be someone else? And I really thought I was onto something when I guessed it might be, like, some sort of a sinister, a Mr. Sinister sort of a, uh, you know, schema or whatever, but nope, wasn't him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, at least as far as we know at this point, it, it was purely Xavier. So, yeah, that was a that was a fun that was a fun conversation to have with myself, trying to trying to outsmart myself, and only wound up thinking too hard about stuff that uh, never happened. Uh, Al continues going back to the text pages on the bottom of the Project Achilles page. 
It says there are currently three mutants there. So if one of them is Sabretooth, who are the other two? Now, Project Achilles is, if I'm remembering right, that that high-security prison where we saw Sabretooth on trial. And, you know, I don't think that's been revealed yet. Uh, Though I very well might be mistaken, I might have missed it, but I don't think they've uh, revealed, uh, at least at this point, that who the other two were. Uh, We knew Sabretooth was there because he was on trial, but couldn't say who the other ones are. Um, Al wraps up by saying, Finally, I've been thinking about doing a Marvel Hickman reread too, including his S.H.I.E.L.D. series and Secret Warriors. And, you know, if I could somehow manifest a mutant power to add about six more hours to every day... I'd give some serious consideration to doing a Hickman Fantastic Four show. Now, I've talked about before how I kind of poisoned my own well when it came to his Fantastic Four run, because I, I'm i a little touched. <laughs> I'm a little touched in the head, and uh, I had it in my head that this his run on Fantastic Four was leading to a reboot. So I was like in this constant fear that we were building to like a new 52 style reboot. And as such, I didn't allow myself to enjoy it because I was too busy projecting my concerns about the future onto it. I think it'd be interesting to give that another look now that we're so far removed from it. I don't know, maybe maybe if somewhere down the line I ever get the urge to reopen the Patreon or something, I'll do something with it. Uh, who knows? <laughs> I don't know. I, I haven't figured out how to cram those extra hours into the day, but... Definitely something I'd love to uh, revisit. Unfortunately, being a somewhat prolific uh, content creator, it's hard to read things for fun anymore without, you know, making the multitaskers and actually using them as content. But uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But thank you so much for your thoughts, Al. I, I, I always look forward to them, especially, you know, since you are coming coming at it from, uh, you know, you're still in Hoxbox and you're still learning all these things. And I, I can't wait until you get up to... Uh, Part nine. That's gonna be that's gonna be a fun email that I'm looking forward to reading for sure. Uh, we're gonna wrap up with a tweet from Baby Skeletor at Skeletor Baby. He says, "A long weekend of listening to me talk X-Men comics, playing retro video games, reading Evil Ernie back issues with thrash metal serving as soundtracks. Time well spent." And that's awesome. Um, I've mentioned before. Uh, Anytime someone reaches out and tells me that they've binged on something that I've been a part of has been uh, humbling and just amazing. Uh, I love it. I love hearing that. It just uh, it it fills me with uh, a little bit of guilt <laughs> because I'm occupying so much of someone's time. But at the same time, it's just it's just awesome. You know, it's awesome to think about that. Uh, you know, that I'm, my my voice is in someone's head. That's that's awesome. And uh, Baby Skeletor here, uh, I, I thanked him, and uh, and they're actually talking about listening to a different X-Men show. This is from Claremont to Claremont, an X-Men podcast, which, A, I absolutely appreciate anyone listening to that show, because that is truly a labor of love with emphasis on the labor. <laughs> and B, it isn't a show I promote nearly as much as maybe I ought to, considering how much work goes into it. Uh, from Claremont to Claremont is a program For those that don't know Because I really don't talk about it all that much It's an every now and again program On this channel where Me and a group of my friends discuss an entire Month's worth of X-Men books Starting with those cover dated October 1991 Now October 1991 That's the cover month Where X-Men Volume 2 Number 1 hit the stand So that's where we started 
And uh, the goal is to work our way through the, you know, the in-between Claremont's run. You know, the, the Lobdell, the Niciesa, everything from, you know, X-Men Volume 2, even though the first three ep- issues of that do include Claremont work, we wanted to cover that just as completionists. But, uh, and the, the show is broken up into segments. And there are segments for every single X-Book of the month. So we have X-Men Volume 2, Uncanny X-Men, X-Factor, X-Force, Excalibur, Wolverine, Alpha Flight, Marvel Comics Presents, and all the X-Happenings in Wizard Magazine. And, uh, you know, we go through the issues and, and talk about them. It's, you know, a comics podcast. It's kind of what you do. And these shows take me uh, about... They take me well over 100 hours to put together. Because uh, th- these are long episodes. Um, there are only two episodes up at this point. They were supposed to be monthly, but uh, I kind of lost my passion for it after after Reggie passed away this spring. Um, the last thing I wanted to do was read a comic book um, because I had associated so much of my comics fandom with what Reggie and I did together. And uh, so I just kind of stopped, you know. Um, but I-, I have been slowly but surely putting together the third episode over the course of the past few months. Um... And as I mentioned, the episodes aren't very long. The first episode is around 10 hours long. The second is closer to 13 hours long. The third, uh, it's probably about two-thirds of the way done, and it's probably I think it's sitting at around 9 hours or so, so by the time all said and done, it'll probably be closer to 13 to 15 hours. So it's going to be another long one. I, I hope to have it done. I hope to have it done before Thanksgiving. Um, I know folks are getting busy again because uh, the world is starting to... Sort of, kind of reopen. So, uh, time is a premium for everybody, and I understand that. And uh, and to be honest, I've drugged my feet on it so long. It's a, uh, it's, it, but it it is still a priority. It is still something I'd like to do. So, you know, we're still pointed forward on that. So, hopefully, soon enough, episode three will come out. Uh, but thank you so much, uh, Baby Skeletor, for uh, for listening and for reaching out. Um, it really means a lot. It really does mean a lot. Um, that show, that sh- like I said, it's a big, huge time investment. And uh, to be completely honest, I, I kind of walked away from the first two issues a little bit disappointed um, because I, I, I thought it would be more warmly received, or at least more widely received. And uh, it was not. <laughs> you know, this was not a uh, "if you build it, they will come" thing. It's a uh, if you build it, it'll be there. Is, is sort of uh, is sort of the way it goes. But uh, it means the world to me that you listen to it. Um, it is a very long show, but I think that's where we'll put a pin on it for today. Uh, next up, we will be discussing New Mutants, and we'll see what happens either on you know Beak's Farm, Shayar Space, or maybe uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe Husk will file her nails for twenty three pages. We'll see how it goes, but. Uh, you know, if you need to get, if you need to, if you want to get a hold of me, because nobody needs to get a hold of me, if you want to get a hold of me, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find all the show notes at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarth.com. Uh, I also just put up a text review uh, for a weird X-Men book. This is a book that, uh, for a long, longest time, I thought was an urban legend. This is the Uncanny X-Men visit the, that was at the State Fair of Texas. And uh, it was a book that haunted me because it would always show up in the Wizard Price Guide and I could never find it. And I could never find anyone who would ever claim to have seen it. So uh, 
I finally found it about a year ago, and I've been looking for just an opportunity to put it out there, and I decided today, why not? Let's just do it. So if you're interested in seeing the X-Men visit the uh, Texas State Fair and fight Magneto and see a, a new mutant who only appears once, um, it's there. <laughs> It's there for you at chrisisoninfinitearths.com. Uh, there's also the X-Lapsed page, xlapsed.chrisisoninfinitearths.com. Uh, we're on Facebook at 90s X-Men. We're on Tumblr at xlapsed, I guess. Um, and there's also the audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, where there's tons of stuff to listen to with much more to come. But I think that's where I'll leave it. One more giant thank you for spending your time with me, sharing your time with me, and just being there with me. <laughs> I really, really appreciate it. Uh, now, till next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 38 of X-Lapsed. And, uh, well, full disclosure, this might be a uh, cranky episode because uh, the book we're covering is kind of all over the place, in my opinion. Um, the subject today is Excalibur, volume 4, number 5, had a March 2020 cover date. And uh, well, let's just hop right in here. Uh, the story is called Verse 5, Panic on the Streets of London. I suppose we should be happy it wasn't just, you know, London Calling. That seems to be, you know, the writery shorthand for cramming a song title into uh, into these Excalibur-type books. Um, written by Teeny Howard, Art Marcus Toe, or Tau, Colors, Eric Arshaniga, Letters, VCs, Corey Petit, Design, Tom Muller, Head of X's Hickman, Edits, Bisa White-Sabalski, Cover Price, $3.99, On Sale Date, January 8th, 2020, and uh, let's uh, let's temper the crankiness here by just uh, you know just sitting in awe of this beautiful cover. Uh, this is a really really striking cover. Here we see uh, a sleeping rogue drawn by Mahmoud Azrar and Matthew Wilson. As you know, Apocalypse's hands are kind of hovering above her here, but it's a, really a very striking, beautiful cover here. It's uh, 
probably right up there with that uh, really awesome Jean Grey cover we saw in uh, X-Force number three. Just wonderfully striking here. Makes you want to read, uh, <laughs> makes you want to open it up and see what's inside, uh, which I guess could be a good or bad thing, depending on, uh, on your mileage. So let's do it. We cracked this thing open, we got our roll call. We've got Gambit, Rogue, Richter, Jubilee, Betsy Britton, Pete Wisdom, and A. And we open with Gambit still fallen in the underground. If you remember last issue, he kind of fell off that cliff when those druids did... Those druids kind of got under Richter's skin, and Richter lost control of his powers, and Gambit slipped. So, uh, Richter's just kind of standing there yelling for a bit, before naturally deciding to dive in and rescue his teammate. Which he does, all the while giving him grief about how he's given up the idolization of a group of men with beards to do so. Hopefully this means we won't have to actually worry about seeing any more druids for a little bit. Uh, I... who knows. Um, now it's not completely clear to me, but I think Richter uses one of those crystals that he was given uh, by the druids to save Gambit. I'm not sure how it works, or even what the goal was supposed to be here. But it looks like everything's okay. Um, I, I don't understand. These panels could be... I could find out that these panels were put in upside down and reversed. And it would have made just as bad as much sense to me here. Uh, the action is kind of... I haven't the foggiest idea. Uh, from here, we get uh, two pages with names on them. And then we come back to comics and rejoin Richter and Gambit. They're back on the outside of the Earth, so they're above ground now. And they're stunned to see those otherworldly beasties tromping around the land. We get a Smith's reference, which, of course, is the name of this title. Uh, the, the title of this issue, I should say. Uh, from here, A delivers a psychic projection to advise them that they got to be getting back to the lighthouse so he can finally, finally finish his ritual. He also refers to Gambit and uh, Richter as his coven, which is kind of stupid, and it kind of makes Apocalypse sound crazy, like not in a good way. Just sounds really bad. Uh, we shift scenes from here to London, where Betsy and Pete Wisdom are battling back the Hydra. As luck would have it, they do so right at the foot of Pete's flat. Okay, here's a question. Here's a question here. Um, do folks in the UK or Great Britain or England or whatever I'm supposed to call it, do they like it when Americans say the word flat instead of apartment? Or like lift instead of an elevator or chips instead of fries or pubs instead of bars? I wonder because I, I think we only do it to sound like worldly and smart, you know? <laughs> but what do I know? Um, they say it's a flat here. I'm going to call it a flat for, for this part here. And maybe I'll think of other words to use as we uh, as we work our way through. Anyway, they, uh, they climb the fire escape and enter Peter's pad. Um, now, are they just leaving the dragon to incinerate the rest of the Londoners here? Or, or is this Hydra only hungry for witch breeds? Uh, it's not made clear. But uh, ducking into Pete's place seems, I don't know, uh, like counterproductive and maybe irresponsible for, you know, the living embodiment of Great Britain in, in Betsy here. Though, I guess, if not for this one page aside, how would we ever get Pete Wisdom awkwardly and aggressively flirting with Betsy? Uh, we find out here that Pete's gotta stay behind because one of the gaggle of high-powered shadow agencies he works for needs him or something. Kinda begs the question why he even bothered to show up in the first place, doesn't it? I mean, he hasn't done a whole heck of a lot. He went with Betsy to meet with those, uh, those two clowns last issue, but that's about it. I suppose maybe it's just the fact that you know, the book is called Excalibur, and uh, anybody who writes Excalibur wants to write Warren Ellis characters, so ipso facto, we got Pete Wisdom. 
Uh, from here, we shift scenes into Rogue's mind. And she's shown walking in a calm land. It's uh, the very same as the one Betsy dreamt about a few issues back. You remember where she met up with that flaming wolf with the sword on his back? Yeah, that place. And uh, you'll never guess who Rogue's about to meet. Yeah, yeah, flaming wolf, sword on the back. Yeah, that same one. Uh, she follows the pup to a large circle with an X that had been mowed into the plains. You know, kind of like the X-Men logo. The circle is surrounded by Moai heads that look like sentinel heads. And then, one of the heads crumbles, revealing a statue of Apocalypse. Now, she questions the Apocalypse, asking about the task he needed her for. The Apocalypse then opens its mouth and hammers Rogue with a blast of energy... or something. He might have just been, like, rinsing out after brushing his teeth. It, it did look minty fresh, so I, I have no idea. Back on Earth, Excalibur and A.E. are battling back the Beasties. We get further confirmation that baby Shogo is responsible for this. Remember, he was a dragon for a minute, and he breathed fire, which cut through the fabric of Otherworld or whatever. A Jubilee insists that Shogo's a good boy. A.E. agrees, mostly, because, hey, this is all falling into place for him. This is exactly the sort of thing he wanted to happen. Gambit's there, and he's annoyed that Rogue only started to stir after he was sent out on a mission, which, uh, how would he even know that? Did I, did I miss, like, him finding that out? I, I doubt Apocalypse is being quite so transparent with everything that's going on. I don't know. Apocalypse claims that his plans had been altered. And Gambit ain't surprised because, you see, he had some unnamed Krakoan telepaths working on waking her up for a little while now. Learning this causes A.E. to fly into a rage because this can even further alter his plans because everything had been measured to a T and timing was everything. He suggests that Gambit very well might have just signed his wife's death warrant. So I guess Gambit and Rogue are still married. Okay. Speaking of Gambit's wife, let's pop back to the wherever the hell she is. Rogue's toppled over and almost appears to be pregnant with whatever beam of glittery toothpaste A just, sp just spat at her. She reaches up, takes a sword from the Apocalypse statue, and, uh, well, she plunges it into her gut like you do. Uh, she makes sure to complain a little bit about men while she does this, which, I don't know, feels unnecessary, but I guess very current year Marvel. Uh, I haven't the foggiest clue what we're even looking at here, or what just happened, so I'll just uh, try my best here. This is another one, another sequence where the panels could be arranged in all different orders, upside down, inside out, and I'd still get the same thing out of it. So, Rogue here, she's suddenly okay. In, in the dreamscape, of course. She sees the flaming wolf who she now knows is a maybe a representation of Rachel Summers, or or is it Rachel Gray? I, I think I think when I left the X-Books, she was calling herself Rachel Gray, but she's been referred to as Rachel Summers in Dawn of X. Maybe it's interchangeable, maybe it just doesn't matter, I don't know. Whatever the case, Rogue approaches a throne that appeared nearby. She goes to sit upon it, but then the sky changes. It goes all orange and red, it's like Crisis on Infinite Earths here, and, uh, we can see suns and moons. So what in the hell does this all mean? Well, since the next couple of pages are of the info variety, I guess we're about to find out. Well, we would have been, you know, about to find out had these pages not been so damned hard to read. I feel like we're trying very, very hard here to coin terminology here. And also, we're using purposely obtuse language to baffle the reader with BS. Uh, maybe it's just trying to make us feel like we're reading, like, high literature? It doesn't work for me, though. I'm sure it impresses some. 
I just got to go back to one of my main complaints about these info pages. Show, don't tell. You know, uh, we this is this is too jarring, and it really pulls me out of the story. And I, and I wasn't that invested to begin with. Whatever the case, Rogue decides now it's the time for her to actually wake up. Back topside, Gambit and A are duking it out. With Gambit perhaps lasting a little bit longer than you might expect... I mean, Apocalypse really shouldn't be struggling with him this hard. Uh, Apocalypse has taken out whole teams of X-Men, and he's, you know, Gambit's getting some punches in here. Uh, he eventually slams Gambit to the ground before heading back over to that Krakoan portal to Otherworld. And he, A.E., that is, is gobsmacked to see that one of the druid's crystals has been spent. If you remember, Richter had to use one to nebulously save Gambit in our opening pages. Richter explains this to A, but that doesn't exactly fix the situation. He needs all the crystals to be fully charged in order to enact his ritual, whatever the hell this ritual may be. A flies off the handle and starts shaking Gambit's limp body, hopeful that some of the crystal's energy might be inside him. Suddenly, A is punched into next week. Well, he's actually punched into an otherworld beastie by the newly awakened rogue. And she just wrecks poor A. She approaches, she removes her gloves, and she places her hands upon A's face. To which he asks her to kill him. Because he's got some old-ass bones that might help give enough energy to power the portal. Or something. And so, Rogue kills A. In so doing, the Krakoan gateway to Otherworld closes, and the beasties are gone. So, uh, yay? Um, Rogue reveals that Apocalypse wanted the throne of Otherworld for himself, or something. We wrap up by getting a good look at Rogue, who is now all apocalypse And we are to be continued. Next episode, we will be finally... Go- we're finally going to be death-birded in uh, New Mutants number 5. But before we do that, well, let's talk about this, right? Let's, uh, let's talk about this issue we just, uh... This issue that just happened to us. Um, and, you know, it's like Excalibur had a pretty good run there. Uh, I think it was a, what one issue that I dug, kind of. Eh. And the thing of it is, that issue, I think it only looked so good because it was compared to... Uh, like, the rest of the line like really crapped the bed with the number fours. So it made Excalibur number four look worth reading by comparison. Um... I feel like this is being written as obtusely as possible. And also, though I might be projecting that I'm, like, supposed to be wildly impressed by its obtuseness, like I'm supposed to feel like I'm reading something smart instead of something just baffling. And what this is, is baffling. This is, uh, you know, the old Dagwood sandwich of weirdness and supposed depth that really doesn't amount to much, you know, and... You know, the Dagwood sandwich is, you know, the Blondie and Dagwood, the the comic strip, you know. You see Dagwood with a sandwich with, like, 45 different layers in it. You know, there's, like, there are pickles, there are, there are like, whole fish sticking out of this thing. There are, you know, grapes hanging out of it. There's just too much stuff here. You know, how many layers do we need in this, in this book? This really doesn't impress me. And honestly, if I weren't a completely sick-in-the-head completionist... And if I wasn't trying to make this an all-inclusive series, I'd be dropping this one. 
I'd be done with it. Uh, I probably would have dropped half the line by now if I were a more you know, well-adjusted human who wasn't a prisoner of, uh, of their own comic book collection. I'm trying to think of things to say. I mean, this feels kind of like, like the reverse Fallen Angels. Now, Fallen Angels, for the handful of people who actually listen to those episodes, because that one's a tough sell, uh, it's difficult to talk, to, be, talk about because, um, really, what is there to say? Nothing happens, and uh, there's only so many you know, deep, poetic conversations that we can discuss, right? There's just nothing happening. By contrast, Excalibur is difficult to talk about because just where in the hell would you begin? So much happens, but it's like so much nothing happens, you know what I mean? It feels like you take a like a maybe a 50-word paragraph, a, a decently written paragraph that makes complete sense, and you put a stick of dynamite in the middle of it, and it explodes. Pieces fly everywhere and just land wherever they land, and it just feels very, very obtuse. Um, it's <laughs> baffling. Um, I'm trying to think of like a single thing I liked about this issue outside of the cover, and I suppose I'm happy that Rogue's finally awake, um, but at the same time, now she's apocalypsed, and I could give a crap. Uh, Betsy and Pete's scene was unnecessary and only seemed to serve to show Pete being a creeper. Richter and Gambit scene to open was a means to an end, and it paid off one of our cliffhangers. I don't know how it did it, because the, uh, the storytelling was very strange there. Just like, okay, they're surrounded by Earth, there's pointy things sticking out, and all of a sudden, okay, we're back topside. I don't understand it. Uh, Rogue's stroll through the wherever the hell was about as obtuse a collection of scenes that we're likely to see in the next book, not called Fallen Angels. And, you know, in fairness sake here, I'm guessing if you were a person who waits for the trade, you'll probably get a bit more out of this because this is just chapter five of, I'm assuming and hoping, six, and it's just another beat in the story. But as a single issue, it kind of fails. Um... I'm trying to think of more things to say, and I just can't, um, because I would just be repeating myself, and nobody wants to hear that. But, uh, you know, considering that the Marvel method is, you know, quote, make this story six issues long or else, I suppose I am sort of looking forward to our next issue, simply because it should be our well-deserved ending. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Um, But really, that's... That's all I got to say about uh, Excalibur number five. I'm sorry to come down so harshly on it. I just, uh, I just did not enjoy it. I did not enjoy it. But uh, before we cut out of here, let's do a little bit of feedback here. We're gonna we're gonna talk with Damien, who's gonna be uh, discussing Fallen Angels number four and a little bit more on Excalibur number four. Now he says this issue of Falling Angel Falling Fallen Angels is literally just one conversation. This takes decompression to a whole other level. I continue to see parallel between the writing I'm seeing here and the terrible poetry I used to write when I was 17 and had read a lot of Sandman. It's awful. Yeah, it's a. Uh, it is wildly decompressed. Um, and it's like uh, I've read a lot of decompressed stuff. We've all read a lot of decompressed stuff before, and decompression. You know, warts and all isn't always a bad thing. Um, like, uh, I, I know I give Bendis a lot of crap, but uh, 
like his Ultimate Spider-Man, I think I, I can say that I would think Bendis was born to write Ultimate Spider-Man, you know, uh, because it was just, it was perfectly him. And when I'd finish an issue of that, and it would go quickly, of course, because it was wildly decompressed, but when I was finished with an issue of Ultimate Spider-Man, I was like counting the days till the next one came out, you know, because it was just so well done, it was just like... It just, it was organic and it felt right. Fallen Angels, it takes very little time to read this, but at the, that, but when I'm done, I'm just like, oh man, I'm going to have to read another one of these in a few days. <laughs> I just don't want to do it. Um, another thing between, you know, other decompressed books, they're not, they're usually not quite as repetitive as Fallen Angels because, I mean, I feel like I'm repeating myself talking about how repetitive this book is because we're finding out the same revelations every issue out so far. And I really... I didn't care much the first time, and fifth and sixth time, I'm going to care even less. So, yeah, it's it's a toughie. Um, Damien continues, On to your reactions to my comments about Britishness. I love that your example of getting it wrong, saying Grant Morrison is British, was actually correct. Scotland is part of Britain. If you're going to talk about us, I'd advise using UK. It covers everyone involved in that invasion. Or you could say British, but make sure you don't mention Garth Ennis, who is from Northern Ireland. And it's funny, um, the Grant Morrison thing, we actually got called out for that when we, uh, when we referred to him as, as being British. Somebody actually wrote in and was like, you know, hey dummies, he's Scottish. And we're like, whoops, because we don't know anything. <laughs> we don't know what's what. Um... You talk about Northern Ireland, and you're going to talk a little bit more about it, so I'll save what I have to say for after that. Uh, Damien continues, I wouldn't worry that you have Irish heritage and don't really get the history. I only found out last year that my granddad was from Southern Ireland when I always thought he was from Northern Ireland. My mom was mortified at my, at my error. I nearly got disowned. I couldn't tell you where the Sheehans come from. Uh, north, north, South, East, or West Ireland. I, I couldn't tell you. Um... We got Sheehans and Dempseys in my family, and I, I know they're I know they're Irish. I just couldn't tell you exactly where. <laughs> I don't know, and and I'm learning stuff here because I didn't know that there was any great big difference. I knew a little bit about like the IRA and stuff, and only through the prism of comic books, though. I was still very young when that was sort of percolating at its you know at a fever pitch, relatively speaking, I suppose. And uh, I only know about it because. You know, there was a story in Action Comics Weekly that had, uh, you know, that had an Irish revolution. And there was a story in Web of Spider-Man that got canceled because it was too close to reality and stuff like that. So everything, you know, everything I know, I know from comics, basically. Uh, Damien continues. Uh, then again, I only discovered that the American War of Independence and your Civil War were separate conflicts after seeing Hamilton and wondering why they didn't cover the whole war. Now, that's interesting. Uh, and this might just be a case of, well, this is definitely a case of me being, you know, American-centric in my thinking here, because because uh, I see our our many, many wars as being kind of, a, I don't know, easy to identify and easy to separate. I never really considered that they weren't, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, because I, I mean, I couldn't tell, I couldn't talk about any other uh, conflicts in other countries. I couldn't speak to them with any sort of uh, legitimacy or, uh, or accuracy. You know, I couldn't tell you any of that stuff. It's it's funny because uh, one of the things, 
we were watch me and my wife were watching um, an episode of Saved by the Bell because uh, we were just killing time in the middle of the day, and uh, we have some shows that we watch late in the evening, like uh, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul or whatever. But we don't like watching those in the daytime, so we were trying to like just kill some time. So we put on some Saved by the Bell, and they were studying for a test where they needed to know dates and. Uh, like which when which war was this? What uh, you know? What battle was this? Uh, when did this person become, you know, uh, become president or royalty? What what year? You know, and I remember how much that screwed me up growing up because I was so terrified of going to high school because I would because I, all I, all that was in my head was that I was going to have to learn all these dates. And of course, you know, you get to high school and nobody cares about dates. I mean, you, you have so, some dates, of course, but it's never like it is on TV where uh, where it's like you need to know exact dates for every single thing. It's uh, it's funny. You know, I don't know why that came. Oh, I, I do know why that came to mind. But uh, eh, I just thought that was uh, an interesting thing that, ju- that just went through my mind the other day. And uh, and here we are talking about it uh, on the show. Now we uh, we wrap up with uh, Damien saying, uh, as you say, they probably know they use the wrong leader. They use the queen, but in a world where there are druids hanging on every street corner, they thought they could get away with it, and that's true. <laughs> that's true. It's I, I mentioned this, uh, I think, several episodes ago, where I was talking about the friends I had in high school um, who were really really into anime, and they like they really thought that. Everything they saw in an anime was going to be, like, on every street corner in Japan. Like, but not, like, just advertisements for stuff, but, like, real, you know, real stuff from anime. And it's it's funny, because it's just, uh, it's so easy to distill a culture and uh, use the, the pop culture trappings uh, of a culture. And uh, it makes me wonder what people think about, uh, about Americans more, because... Uh, I mentioned that in you know anime and manga, they usually show us uh, more like cowboys, and I guess like pretty much everywhere else they show us as being wildly overweight and uh, and sweaty. But uh, I-, I wonder what uh, what other <laughs> what other cultures think of uh, what what's the distillation of an American, and that that might be a very very loaded question. So maybe I won't actually ask it, but. Uh, I think that's uh, that's where we'll leave that. Uh, uh, thank you so much for writing in, Damien. I always look forward to your messages here, and I I appreciate the education in uh, in Britishness, <laughs> as it were. Uh, but I think that's where we'll cut it for today. Um, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so at weirdcomicshistory at gmail dot com or at Ace Comics on Twitter. You can find show notes at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com, also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. Find us on Facebook at 90sxmen. Find us on Tumblr at wherever the hell it is. I am uh, considering starting a mailing list. I'm putting pieces together for that, so I'll, I'll have more information on that as it as it comes available. And there are some some other projects that are brewing, uh, both xlapsed and otherwise, so... I will uh, announce those as they come, uh, as they start to come to pass. So, look forward to that. If uh, if you would ever look forward to anything I do, I, you might like it. So we'll see. But I think that's where we will leave it. Oh, oh yeah, the full audio archives, ChrisandReggie.Podbean.com. All those hours of entertainment, or <laughs> as it were, are waiting for you there. But that's where we'll leave it. Uh, one giant thank you to everyone, and uh, 
I guess, an apology for uh, being so down on this issue. Uh, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I don't think I don't think comic creators wake up in the morning and say, "I'm going to write a comic that stinks." Um, and you know, this might not necessarily stink to you, but it baffled me pretty good. So there's that. So thank you, and I'm sorry. <laughs> and uh, until next time, when we discuss, when we all get deathbirded in New Mutants number five, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 44 of X-Lapse, where it looks like we're sort of kind of wrapping up a uh, story arc here in the pages of Excalibur. Uh, fingers crossed that uh, maybe we'll be able to, I don't know, stay out of Otherworld for a little while, but uh, I suppose that remains to be seen. Uh, we are talking about Excalibur number 6. Uh, this is Excalibur volume 4 number 6, uh, March 2020 cover date. The story is called Verse 6, Watch the Throne. Written by Teeny Howard with art by Marcus Toe. Colors, Eric Archinaga. Letters, VCs Corey Petit. Design, Tom Muller. He gets a uh, credit this time. Head of X is Hickman. Edits, Bisa White Sabolski. Cover price, $3.99 American. Went on sale January 22, 2020. Now we open on Krakoa, where he is already being brought back to life. So, uh, is this a record? There's gotta be a record, right? I think he was only dead for, like, two pages. Maybe. A page or two. Anyway, Professor X expresses how disappointed he is that Apocalypse abused their resurrectability as a way of getting what he wanted. Now, if you'll recall, Apocalypse needed the energy from his aged bones to power that crystal to do whatever the hell it was gonna do to that gateway to Otherworld. Uh, here, in the storm role of, like, reborn mutant presenter is the uh, similarly newborn weirdo Jamie Braddock. So, there's that. And this won't be the last time we see him today. Info page, and it's a map of Avalon and Otherworld, which, I don't know, is kind of unnecessary in my opinion. Because really, 
I mean, does it matter what Avalon looks like? This could have been a narrative caption one sentence long, but instead, it eats up an entire page. And also, if I'm not mistaken, it might give away, like, a swerve that happens later in the issue. Maybe I'm wrong, but then again, uh, maybe I'm just allergic to Avalon and have already checked out. Speaking of eating up pages, let's get to our roll call. We got Apocalypse. We got that weirdo Jamie Braddock. We got Morgan Le Fay, Betsy Britton, Shogo, Jubilee, Gambit, Richter, Rogue, and Betsy's bombastically beautiful British brother Brian Braddock. Then, hey, we're back to a double-page spread of cred, so I guess last issue, last episode's issue of Marauders was, unfortunately, an anomaly. But maybe since we have two pages, they could fit Tom Muller on there. Maybe they couldn't fit him in when it was just one, so if that's the case, then I guess uh, if it helps Tom Muller get a credit, I'm for it. When we finally get back to comics content, uh, Morgan Le Fay is battling back the brigades of the White Witch. Did we miss something? Was there like a tremendously boring Otherworld one-shot that I forgot to add to my comics order that month? Do we even know who this White Witch is? Is, is it Saturnine? I mean, it almost has to be, right? Oh well, it isn't long before Excalibur arrives on the scene complete with Baby Dragon Shogo, and they join the fight. Uh, they proceed to engage with Morgan Le Fay's forces, however, aren't able to put much of a dent into them. Just then, A appears. He reveals that, as a member of the Quiet Council, he's able to be pushed ahead in the Resurrection queue, which explains how he came back so quickly. Maybe a little too quick for my taste, but eh, you know what? Whatever gets his story over faster is just fine by me. He begs Betsy Britton's indulgence as he has a plan for victory that he would like to uh, maybe look into. Betsy tells him she doesn't need or want his help, but come on, you do. Just let him do what he's going to do. And so A tromps over to Morgan Le Fay, who stands her men down in order to listen. Now his plan is Braddock vs. Braddock for control of Otherworld in a duel, so Betsy vs. Brian. And Morgan is actually kind of giddy at the possibilities, and she agrees to the terms. She doesn't think that her Black Knight will, uh, will go down in this fight. We shift to a little bit later on, where Rogue and Betsy are having themselves a chat. They're talking about A's proposition, and basically whether or not Betsy can actually do the thing. Maybe not so much win the fight, but can she kill her brother? Rogue assures Betsy that no matter what happens, she's the hero here. Then, A shows up to interrupt and let him know that the now is the time. Worth noting, Apocalypse is walking with the help of a cane, which is pretty cool. Uh, it's a nice bit of detail to show that maybe he's pushing himself a bit too soon, right? He's not able to hold his full heft up by himself. So, let's get to dueling. Betsy and Brian X their swords and for the next few pages engage in battle. Jubilee, who's flying on Dragonback, asks her son to get them into position just in case Betsy needs an assist. A reaches out to her telepathically and tells her that she is in no way to interfere. But she should still stay close, as A might just have use for Shogo's Dragonfire. Oh, and he also claims to have found a remedy for the fire's reality-rending qualities. Uh, remember, it did tear a hole in the very... The very seams of reality or whatever it was. Fabric, that's the word I'm looking for. So, the fight continues, and it's a pretty even match. That is, until Brian gets an eyeful of who's currently sitting on the throne. It's that weirdo Jamie Braddock, who's sitting there like he's trying to air himself out. 
Now, this momentary distraction is just enough for Betsy to disarm and then run Brian's own sword right through him. She apologizes immediately and attempts to explain that she had no other choice. As the dust settles, he commands Shogo to do his thing, and so it's fire-breathing time. Morgan's remaining forces either scatter or burn, so it's like, I, I guess we're not really paying much attention to that whole kill-no-man law, are we? I, I, I feel like every team that we follow in these Dawn of X books are like the lone exceptions to the rule, you know? it's If, if you're all accepted from it, then what's the point of the rule? Alright, so Brian's dead, Morgan's forces are Dunsky, all that's left to do now is bow down to the king. And while we learned last issue, uh, or maybe the issue before that, that Apocalypse had his eyes on the throne, it's here we find out that, yeah, he, he sure did have his eyes on the throne, but it wasn't intended for his big blue butt. Hey, he bows down to the king, King Weirdo I, Jamie Braddock. Now, Jamie's first act is capturing Morgan Le Fay in a cage. She argues she protests this move because she claims the arrangement that they made was that if her knight lost, she'd be allowed to live in exile. And Jamie's all, yeah, that's right, but uh, you really don't get to choose where that exile is going to be, so tough noogies. Betsy slaps Jamie in the back of his head and commands that he bring back Brian. When he doesn't get right to it, Betsy, uh, well, she stomps on Jamie's genital region, which is probably something he's used to like paying big bucks to get women to do. He eventually relents, or climaxes, at which time he goes about reviving his beautiful brother Brian. Brian wakes up, and he's both shocked and disappointed that his weirdo brother has been resurrected. Jamie's happy that Betsy kept his, you know, his resurrection a secret from Brian like he'd asked her to. He then uses his reality-warping powers to... place jester hats on his siblings. You know, really important stuff here. Uh, Betsy and Brian turn to A to ask what he's thinking, and A says it's a no-brainer. Jamie is one of the most powerful mutants going, and his power set and name makes him the logical choice as ruler over Otherworld. And you know what? Just as long as we don't have to visit the place every issue, I could give a rat's ass who they put in charge of it. Now we shift scenes back to Krakoa, and we join Rogue and Gambit, who are having a bath together. They're in a little hot tub here. Rogue, by the way, is back to normal. She's not all apocalypsy anymore. They have themselves a chat about whether or not they're ready, or will ever be ready, to have children. Rogue thought it would be the next logical step after getting married, but she ain't so sure that this is the direction they ought to be going. Gambit, he's cool with it either way, so long as they still get to do it. That's fine. Uh, back at Braddock Manor, Betsy heads into Brian's room so she could take him back to Krakoa to be with Megan and Maggie for some dinner. She finds Brian sitting at the edge of his bed holding his sword, and this is the Sword of Might. And I have a sneaking suspicion we'll be seeing more of this thing eventually. Uh, Brian's pretty down on himself. He says he failed the Captain Britain test. And if you're familiar with Captain Britain and the Captain Britain test, you know it's uh, where you're supposed to choose either to take the sword or the amulet. And while under Morgan Le Fay's spell, he chose the sword. Betsy consoles him and reminds him that he wasn't himself. Brian laments that whatever the case, that witch ruined his life. He then manifests a brand new Captain Britain costume, which is a really, really cool and striking mix of like his old, his original costume with like his hair out the top and the classic costume. It's a really good look. I like it a lot. Now we wrap up back in Otherworld, where King Weirdo hears the White Witch's forces approaching. He heads down to the lab to confer with A, and we find him conducting conducting an operation or an experiment on Morgan Le Fay 
where she's gutted and connected to some of those glowing crystals. We have one more info page that I ain't going to read, and we're out of here. Speaking of being out of here, next episode, we finally, finally wrap up Fallen Angels, and hopefully we'll never have to speak of it again. But before we get there, let's talk about what we just read. I'm going to hand it to him, okay? Uh, I never thought they'd be able to give us any sort of resolution in this sixth issue. You know, the Marvel method, six issues by hook or by crook. And yet here we are. Um, sure, we had to, like, we had to, like, Mach 5 through A's resurrection to get here, but whatever, right? At least, at least it's over, right? That said, let's consider the overall pacing for this arc. It was kind of all over the place, no? I mean, this six-issue story here in many ways even defies, like, the writing-for-the-trade sort of storytelling. We get so much build-up, so much scenery... And it winds up climaxing in a pretty inorganic one-on-one duel. And a duel that was largely theater to begin with. I mean, what was stopping that weirdo Jamie Braddock from caging Morgan Le Fay while Shogo blew fire on the forces from the get-go? I don't know. I mean, this story is one where I feel like the closer you look at it, the, the more the holes <laughs> show. You know, the more holes in it you see. Um, let's look at some of the stuff I like, because despite... You know, any complaint I have, I actually did like this issue. I didn't think it was bad. I I like the Rogue and Gambit scene on Krakoa. Though, I will say, they made me feel absolutely ancient. Because uh, they referred to themselves as being young and feisty back in the long ago. And uh, I remember those days. And I didn't know that they'd age so much in the interim. But I, I guess they did. <laughs> that makes me feel very, very old. Now, it makes sense for Rogue, or I guess anyone, really, to worry about having children. Now, that's a normal a normal fear, a normal bit of trepidation that I can get behind. Uh, personally, I'd like to keep Gambit and Rogue childless. But then again, I prefer as little change as possible anyway. I'm pretty much barely coming to terms with the fact that Rome, Rogue seems to have control over her powers, you know? Uh, for so long, she was pretty much defined by her inability to touch and be touched. I gotta ask, when did this happen? When did this change occur? I, I want to say I was still reading when it happened, but damned if I could pinpoint when it was and how it came about. I, I don't know if it was within the past few years, or maybe it was like the tail end of my, of my you know, ongoing reading, and I just forgot about it. But I do not remember this being a thing. Is, is the, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if she's wearing a uh, some sort of inhibitor. I mean, there are, there are damn sure are enough of them in this uh, Dawn of X world, but uh, I don't think that's the case. So if anybody out there remembers, please feel free to let me know. Educate me. Uh, one thing, though, about Rogue here, she doesn't seem all that affected having just killed Apocalypse. I mean, whether she was tricked into it or not, she actually used her powers to take a life. Uh... I figured she'd at least take a moment to examine that and maybe reconcile that. I don't know. I mean, we're we're treating death so strangely in this in these books here, where like we understand that the stakes have changed, and this is something that I've said dozens of times already. But uh, you're still, if you're killing someone, you're still killing someone, right? Even if they're going to come back, you're still ending a life for a time. You're putting someone through something that, uh, you know, people shouldn't be put through. I don't know. It just feels like... 
Since the stakes have changed, we all value these lives so much less. You know? Um, I don't know, it's like... I really don't know. I, I, I don't like how lightly they're taking lives here. Even though... I mean, even though li- lives and deaths are, are pointless, relatively speaking, in this book, I still don't like the fact that they're uh, they're so glib and uh, they really don't... They don't stop and think about it, is what I'm worried about. Uh, now, Jamie, for as gross and as weird as he is, he has this sort of charm to him. Uh, I can't help but kind of like him. And I wouldn't mind seeing a lot more of him, so long as it has nothing to do with Otherworld, which uh, I guess pretty much means that I'm out of luck. Uh, Apocalypse, he is still probably the most interesting and the strongest member of this cast. And uh, outside the outrageously dull grimoire info pages, I really enjoy what they're doing with them. I'm intrigued and excited to see, you know, what his endgame is and how it plays out. Uh, for the past, you know, six issues, he's more or less been playing chess with the rest of the cast, which, to me, is probably the best way to utilize him, because he is so powerful. And, uh, I mean, he could wipe these guys out, but he's using them for his own means here, and I like that. This is good stuff. Uh, really, the only bits of this that I that I like didn't care for were the parts wrapped up in otherworldly lore. Um, I think if we can ever get to a point where Excalibur could just like hang out on Earth, <laughs> I really come around to liking and, and maybe even championing this book. Uh, I'm enjoying these interpersonal scenes that we're getting. I like seeing Rogue and Psylocke talking. I like seeing Rogue and Gambit together. I'm liking, you know, Jubilee and Apocalypse talking. I, I, I like that kind of stuff, but it's all this Otherworld stuff. Uh, I, and I mean, I know that we're going to have some Otherworld stuff in the uh, the X of Tens event, so I'm not... I know it's coming back. <laughs> I just don't know how soon it's coming back, but... Uh, Hopefully we get a few issues where maybe we're just, uh, maybe, you know, Betsy and, and her friends go to the pub or something. Or maybe they fight, I don't know, maybe they find some leftover Reaver or something. I don't know, just give me something that is another world and I'll, I'll be okay with it. Bring bring back TechNet, you know, get the Wolves in here, do some actual Excalibur stuff. But uh, I guess, you know, I guess we'll wait and see on that. Overall, I'm happy that we got like a measure of resolution here for this opening arc. And outside of knowing full well that Otherworld isn't going away, I'm somewhat optimistic to see what's to come. But I think that's all I got to say about Excalibur number 6. But uh, before we go, we have a very, very short mail segment here. Just one letter from Damien. And he's talking about Fallen Angels number 5. Damien says, You established, reading my feedback on this episode, that my sense of humor is quite dark. And I have to let you know that I find these episodes hilarious. I was genuinely laughing out loud at your comments. I'm not sure you picked up on all the subtleties in the story, so I just wanted to make sure you were aware that Betsy Braddock used to be in Quinnon's body and that caterpillars turn into butterflies. And, uh, yes, I, I believe that's going to be on the test. I th- <laughs> they're mentioning it an awful lot here. Yeah, the, uh, Fallen Angels is, uh, I don't want to say it sucks, but, uh, <laughs> it's something else in it. Uh, thankfully we only have one more. Um, but yeah, they, they're really driving home a lot of this poetic sort of, uh, purple nonsense here with everything's about caterpillars and butterflies. And, uh, 
we can't it seems like we can't go not even full issues we can't even go a handful of pages without Quanan mentioning that she still you know feels Betsy in her body and it's just too much I mean Quanan is very much a one-dimensional character as it is and all we do in in in, in, in this repetition all we do is is like put that in concrete right it's like we're not giving this character a chance to grow, a chance to evolve. It's all about butterfly imagery and the fact that Betsy was in her body. That's it. I mean, maybe they're trying something new here with this Apoth thing, but the fact that so much of it is informed by the fact that we have worms and butterflies and Betsy's body, it's way too much. Way too much. Damien continues, Talking of subtlety, did you notice how they justified the book title by calling Bling and Husk angels? As subtle as a hang glider flashing and... I... I must have checked out. I didn't even notice that. <laughs> I don't... I, uh... Man, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't notice that, but yes. That is, uh, fairly blatant. And, uh, you know, I think Husk... She's kind of used to like something along the lines of a hang glider flashing. If uh, I'll go back to you know pull out the old chestnut that I'll, I'll remind everyone here that she and Warren Worthington banged in front of her parents in midair. You know that's that's up there with uh, caterpillars turned into butterflies. Betsy was in Quinnon's body and Husk and Angel banged in midair in front of her parents. So that's there. Uh, Damien wraps up with still can't believe that they published six issues of this. I haven't read the last issue yet, but it clearly has little to no impact as I've read Quanon's appearances in X of Tens, and she doesn't appear any different. Weird. And yeah, I mean, this is... This is up there with, like, some of the most pointless stuff I've I've ever read as part of, like, a shared universe or a, a line, you know, a line of books. We already saw in, the, in X-Men number 5, uh, X-23 is... Back, she's just back, and she's in her Wolverine outfit. It's very, very strange that uh, what's happening in this book is not being—it's not being reflected, which makes you, you know, beg the question: Why are we even bothering with this? Unless this sixth issue is going to establish that Quanan's sword is in some way special, and that's what gets us to Exitens. I—I don't know. It's like, but that seems like, I mean, six issues. 20 pages of pop word, 120 pages, give or take, all to say that, hey, this sword that Betsy, or not Betsy, Quanan has, is important. It's going to be one of the ten, if that's even the thing that's going on over there. I don't know, it just seems like uh, we're taking the scenic route. And it's a, uh, it's actually like if you go, if you go for a ride in the country and you take the scenic route, and like the most interesting thing you see is a cow. You know, it's not very interesting. I you know, I don't need to see a cow in real life. I know what cows look like, so it's a it's a very boring scenic route is where we're what we're going through through here. And uh, I mean, we are just about to read the sixth issue. That's going to be the next episode of this program. So maybe it'll totally blow us away. Maybe it's been hiding in it's been hiding in the bushes for five issues, and then it's going to just leap out on us and blow our minds. We gotta hope, right? We gotta have hope. Otherwise, why are we even bothering, right? So we'll, we'll keep positive thoughts. 
and we will uh, hope for the best. But uh, thank you so much for writing in, Damien. I, I definitely appreciate you listening to Fallen Angels Day. <laughs> the proud, the few. And, uh, and I appreciate uh, you, uh, you enjoying my attempts at levity during this episode because uh, this is one of those you got to laugh or you'll cry sort of things. So thank you so much. Um, now, I think that's where we'll, we'll end it for today. Uh, so if anybody would need to or like to get a hold of me, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find the show notes and the stuff at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, xlaps.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, Facebook, 90sxmen, chrisandreggie.podbean.com for the audio archives. And hey, if you, if you see me anywhere you know, sharing these shows here, and if you're, if you're enjoying what I do, hey, maybe share it out. Maybe uh, help, me, uh, help me propagate this program throughout uh, all different avenues. So... I would very, very much appreciate that uh, getting some some new eyes and ears on this uh, on this little project that we've been uh, this little journey that we've been on together. So that's where we'll leave it for today. Uh, just one more giant thank you for everyone taking their time to listen and, and write and uh, sharing your time with me. If it's a uh, if I'm on your commute to work or walk through the park or uh, wherever we are together, I very much appreciate it. So till next time. Thank you, and I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.